Wanna go, pretty boy? Two minutes by yourself and you feel shame, you know, and then you get free. Anything better than a glass of beer is tea with Miss McGill. And welcome to the Fourth Line Voice Podcast. My name is Darren. Thank you very much for tuning in. Episode 35 of the Big Show, some enforcer-based podcasting coming at you. Brought to you by the Hockey Podcast Network. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, I have a very special guest today. Um... Man, I've known since the old message board days. I got uh, Drew Pelto coming on, and uh, Drew was a great guest, and we we talked about uh, actually it was something. Um, it was really interesting. It was uh, Junior A League, uh, the NAHL, the North American Hockey League. It's actually the oldest uh, Junior A League in the United States. Um, Drew was actually a commentator, play by play guy for the Wichita. Uh, Wichita Falls uh, Wildcats, and uh, and he was there for uh, five years, and uh, so and he had, and it's a like it's a league I, very, I I I know I don't know very much about, so it was it was fun to talk to him and kind of get uh, and get a different perspective on things from not just a fan or a player, but from a commentator. And uh, Drew shared some stories, and uh, he's also an avid uh, uh, collectibles guy and a hockey and. Uh, Autograph collector and card collector. So of course we have uh, that you know drunk hockey hashtag drunk hockey garden right. Um, and I know Andrew always likes the tough guys and the fights and stuff. But uh, no, we get into some uh, autograph collecting talk and uh, you know just who was good signers and bad signers and uh, some stories there. And uh, you know it's all, that's always an interesting uh, look at things as well. And um, no, like I said, I always had I had fun talking to Drew and uh, Drew. I know you're listening. Find those DVDs. We got to get some NHL footage out there. But uh, Drew Pelto on Twitter, you guys check him out. Uh, like I said, Drew is a great guest. But uh, hey, episode thirty-five. So you know what that means. There's obviously thirty-four other shows to check out. And uh, of course, Sunday was my vault episode with Max Mittendorf, old Mad Max. Always a uh, great time talking to him, and he he always tells great stories. And um, you know, mid. 80s OHL playing against Probert and Shoebottom and those guys, and of course he went on and played in the American League, and as well as in the NHL with the Quebec Nordiques and the Edmonton Oilers, and talks about playing with Stasty and Mark Massier and stuff. And uh, no, it was a cool talk. And uh, like I said, you go back and look at the guys I've talked to: John Morasty, Steve McIntyre, um, you know, Chris Graff, Josh Mazer, Joey Tedarenko, you know, Sean McMorrow, on and on. And uh, like I said, it's. Uh, you know, I know there's lots of things to listen to out there. I mean, everybody and their dog has a podcast these days. So, um, the very fact that you're tuning in and listen to me now, I appreciate it. And, uh, like I said, hopefully you, uh, check out the other, the other episodes as well. Of course, uh, you know, the hockey podcast network, you got 31 NHL teams all represented. Of course, the playoffs on right now. Um, you know, those guys are staying busy as well as, uh, of course, oh, Terry Ryan, you know, his tales of TR and, uh, you know, Terry always can spin a yarn. And, um, yeah, and then, of course, all my boys outside of the network, you know, Alec over at Five for Fighting, who I know has been battling his audio issues and his computer issues, that tid, that Curtis Tidbull interview will come out, I know he's put 
hours into that trying to figure out the audio problems and uh i feel for him i've been there and it's uh, it's not fun so um you know hang in there alec you know you'll get it but uh you know bobby longgrass with the bucket drop podcast joe at the coliseum chronicles um you know and uh joe just put out the uh, toughest islander left wingers and you know those guys always put out great content and i uh, i highly recommend uh everybody tuning into that also, we talk. I talk about it with Drew. Um, he's also on. He has a YouTube channel where he talks about his collectibles and stuff, and his auto, the autographs uh, stories and the hunting and and everything. Uh, definitely check that out. I'll put a link in the description. And um, he's also on Instagram. Like I said, we talk about all that in the episode. Uh, but before, I'm not going to talk too long because Drew and I get yapping for about two hours. But um, you know, before I go, of course, I have to talk to you guys about CoolHockey.com. Been around since 1999. NHL jerseys. Um, I know you guys are big, the NHL watchers, big fans out there. I know when you guys are buying your jerseys, you don't want to buy none of the, none of that knockoff stuff. They got to be the uh, the originals, you know, with the fight straps. And the, you know, the jerseys the guys actually wear. Well, I got a good deal for you. CoolHockey.com. Uh, if you, on checkout, if you use the promo code THPN, gives you 30% off and free shipping. They're out of Toronto. And uh, like I said, I've, I've kind of gone through the site and looked at a few things. I talked to a few people that are into the jersey buying and uh, great reputation. They said, uh, you know, they've always got their stuff and it's solid. And uh, I always tell the story like uh, when I was at the at the mall, I was at Jersey City. And there they are. They, they're the jerseys with the name like Crosby and Price and all them. $300 they wanted for these jerseys. And, you know, and it's like, oh, my God. But this is the exact same jersey. I did it with the Calgary Flames, number 16, McGratton, custom hand-sewn with the actual numbers and like how they how they do it, the fight straps, the whole nine yards, $185, free shipping. There you go, it's like half the price. Can't beat it with a stick, right? What more can one man provide you? And like I said, and then it, the, you know, with the, the network gets a bit of a kickback, you and Dylan and the boys, you know, like I said, they're... Uh, they're putting out these 31 shows and or hosting the 31 shows and uploading everything and keeping all us idiots in check. So, uh, you know, it helps them out and uh, gives you guys a great deal on the jerseys, gives a little bit of money into into their pockets to keep this uh, this this show on the show going. And, um, you know, everybody wins. So, uh, you know, I highly encourage everybody to check that out. I haven't gone on the site yet or lately. I don't know if they have the... Seattle cracking stuff out yet. I'm sure they obviously they'll get it, but I'm not sure if they got it yet. But definitely check it out, coolhockey.com and uh, THPN at checkout, 30% off free shipping. So there you go. There's my ad read or ad suggestion. And uh, how about we just, uh, you know, I'm going to cut it short. I've already, I'm not going to say who, but I was already done. I've done almost two hours of interviewing and uh, my, I'm running out of voice here and it's 1130 at night. And, uh, so I'm going to, I'm not going to uh, ramble for too long for this uh, intro, but uh, Drew, Drew and I ramble enough, but it was a great talk and I, I hopefully I can get Drew back on at some point and we can, uh, you know, tell a few more stories, but he was a great, great guest. But uh, here is my talk with Drew Pelto. Thanks, guys. All right, here we are on the fourth line voice. And my guest all the way out in Texas, former, we're going to be talking about the uh, Wichita Falls Wildcats, the NAHL, the former announcer, the Golden Fog. Actually, I just sort of, I just started calling them the Golden Fog. I don't know what they actually called them, but we're going to find all that out and a whole lot more. My guest today, 
Drew Pelto. Drew, how you doing today? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me on here. Oh, absolutely. And uh, no, this is actually going to be a lot of fun. I was saying to the guys last night on Twitter, uh, when it comes to the NAHL, the North American Hockey League, the oldest junior A hockey league in the United States, I didn't know that until I was doing my research, I actually don't know much about this league. So I'm looking forward to talking to you and, uh, and learning some stuff. Yeah, it's had, I mean, some uh, big names coming through there at times. I mean, we had, uh, if you go back into the late 80s and early 90s, like Eric Lindros actually played part of a season there. Um, it's been, yeah, I mean, you said it's the oldest one in, in America. It's been around since the 70s, back when it was like the Great Lakes Junior Hockey League or something like that, and then morphed into what it is now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and like I said, we you know, we got the, uh, uh, you know, some, and of course, this being an enforcer-based podcast, I mean, uh, Drew and I aren't going to be talking about zone entries and first passes. We are going to be discussing, uh, you know, John Scott and George Peros coming out of the league and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, before we all get rolling about the NHL, it's funny, you and I go way back because I can remember you from the old fight message boards. Yeah, I've been around those since God, the late 90s or so. I got a, as a freshman in high school, finally had internet access and stumbled onto... Uh, it was Mr. Soul's fight board, you know, 97, 98, 99 we're talking. I think it was gone by 99 or so. Yeah. And, of course, you know, got onto fried chicken after that, and I've been on fried chicken all the way up until it went and saw it to demise here in the last couple of years. Yeah, no, I laughed when we were, when we were going back and forth on Messenger there, and you hit me with the Mr. Soul's. Oh, I had forgotten <laughs> about that one. Yeah. And, yep. Uh, but, yeah, the, the fried chicken, yeah, and that's where we, uh, I know, uh, I saw your posts up there, and we first started talking, and, uh, Man, tell, I always like to talk about the old message board days because, I mean, they're all gone now. And, of course, I had Dave and everybody, and Steve and all of them on my show before. And we, we have yep. a real nerd-out session talking about fried chicken and stuff. Um, yeah. Folks, there was message boards long before HockeyFights.com, I can tell you that. And uh, but and Drew was on there. What were your thoughts when you, like, you first get on the, uh, on the, on the old internet machine and all of a sudden you stumble mm-hmm. across this fight site and you're like, Oh my God! I'm not the only one. Well, the way I first heard about it was actually because I was a and still am a hockey card and autograph collector. Yep. And uh, when I was in probably about seventh grade or so, talking you know, back to middle school there, um, I was able to talk my grandmother into getting me a subscription to Beckett Hockey, so I could have a price guide and everything, and be able to find all the lace on cards. And the very first issue I received was about fighting and hockey. And uh, I'd already known that, you know, there are fights and everything and liked watching them. It was actually, I kind of got back interested in hockey again because of the uh, Detroit and Colorado brawl with uh, Vernon versus Wah. Yeah. And so uh, getting that issue in there, they had the, uh, it was that guy at uh, Bowling Green had like what was believed to be the first site on the internet dedicated just to hockey fights, mostly about Red Wings guys. But they had a link to his uh, his site mentioned in there, so I went and checked it out and Kind of ended up going down the rabbit hole after that, and not long after it, found uh, Souls board there, and kind of, you know, sit back and watch and learn, basically. Yeah, no, exactly, yeah, same thing when I got on there in the Souls, then I think there was one, Rink Rat, that was another one, and then all of a sudden, yep. fr- uh, Fried Chicken, and uh, and it was always funny, like, I was, because at that point, it was uh, late, so I was out of high school, um, you know, it was late 90s, but I, you know, I was always kind of the guy in high school, everybody, when they wanted to know about fight, because I, because I had like five or six fight tapes, so I'm worried I'm the genius, right, you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, so I'm the guy that they always, thought, and we had like goon drafts and all that stuff, I'll have to tell all the listeners about goon drafts someday, that was, damn, if we had only harnessed that, I could have been before DraftKings, I could have made millions, but, um, oh yeah, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so and I so I kind of thought, oh, I know all this stuff, right? Well, all of a sudden, I log <laughs> on to Fried Chicken and quickly realized I don't know shit, right? So, yep. Yeah, I mean, I was always pretty good at the Western League because we had the blades here and stuff. So I was always kind of a good junior source guy. But uh, yeah, when all of a sudden we start talking, and there's like guys all of a sudden they start dropping like WHA shit and stuff. It's like, ooh, yep. okay, I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I have heard of these things, but I don't know who you're talking about. Yeah. So it was uh, quite quite the education on there, that's for sure. Oh, definitely. Well, um, so we're like, we're, so what, uh, you know, obviously I know you're into all sports and everything, but we'll, you know, we'll talk hockey here. Um, where'd, when did you first get into hockey? And, uh, where, well, where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up actually just outside Cleveland, Ohio, which, uh, being a northern area, is really not a hockey hotbed at all. Like uh, all of the, you had a, you know a junior team there. We had a minor league team, the Cleveland Lumberjacks, later yep. the Cleveland Barons. But um, yeah, I usually got maybe you know one or two games a year as a kid, but that was about it. But uh, the first year that I remember seeing anything hockey related would have been about ninety ninety one when I was a kid there, and uh, Pittsburgh Penguins were the closest team to me growing up, and they won back to back cups, of course, at that time. So when that's the when the closest team to you is the uh, champion twice in a row, you kind of get into it a little bit there. And for better or for worse, I've been a Penguins fan my whole life now. But I um, went to a game in, I think it was the 92-93 season. It was the first year that we got the Lumberjacks from Muskegon. And with a couple minutes left in the game was the first fight that I ever got to see actually live. Because I'd seen a few of them on TV and stuff before. But uh, Paul Laws and uh, Lyndon Byers threw down in that one. So, you know, a former NHL legend versus a future NHL legend going at it there. I don't really remember anything about the fight at all. But it was right in front of me, and I was hooked after that pretty much. Absolutely. Yeah, the old... Uh... Yeah, the IH. Man, I miss the IHL. I love the IHL. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so yeah, so you grew up in Cleveland or outside of Cleveland. But uh, and I know, yeah. you know, we we won't talk about the Browns or the Indians because that'll be just yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Indians, hey, you know, but the Browns—that's just heartbreaking, you know. Yeah, exactly. It was so funny. I know we're off track here, but I was kind of the other night. I was kind of flipping through, and I was watching. Uh, it was like NFL films. And I was watching a thing on Bernie Kosar. Oh, yeah. I dig Bernie Kosar, man. I feel so bad for that dude. He did everything he could to try to play for the team that he grew up watching. I mean, he engineered it so that he could be picked by them, wanted to turn them into a championship, wanted to turn them into a champion, and fought his ass off to do it and just repeatedly got thrown into the ground for it. Oh, Ernest Biner. Oh. Yeah. But, I love Viner, but uh, I, I blame I blame Webster Slaughter more for that one. But yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, though they're just showing Bertie Kosar. I was like, is there like a tougher human ever? Like, how many oh, shots yeah. did that dude take? And just like got back up every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was I was down with Bernie, but uh, what did I just say? We we're a hockey podcast, and here we are rambling. Well, like I was telling Drew before we got going, I said I'm sure I don't know how long we're gonna go for, but we're just, I'm we're just gonna I'm gonna hit record and we'll ramble. And uh, we'll see what happens. But it works. I got a good three hours ahead of me here. So <laughs> ah, there you go. Oh, I, don't, don't laugh. I've had episodes go that long. Yeah, nice. yeah. We're packing. Listeners have to pack a lunch sometimes. Yep. But um, yeah. So when did? Uh, well, did you go into broadcasting? Like, like how? Okay, how did? We'll start this. How do you end up being the announcer in Wichita Falls? We'll start with that. A lot of just. Great coincidences, mostly. So, uh, yeah, growing up, I always wanted to be a pro athlete because I think every kid does at some, whether, whether at whatever sport you can get into. So, I mean, 
my problem was that in baseball in Little League, I had a zero sixty seven batting average. So that's like, yeah, baseball's out. Football, I'm about five eight right now on a good day. So it's like, yeah, I'm not playing football anytime soon. Basketball, again, I'm five eight on a good day. That's not happening. And hockey, I really couldn't play because I didn't start skating until I was sixteen. So I figured, all right, let's go into broadcasting then. So uh, I go to college up in Boston at uh, Emerson College. They're one of the top journalism schools in the country. Went into broadcasting there, mostly in radio. And, uh, yeah, I mean, most of my stuff up to that point had just been, you know, like anchoring, reporting, news writing, stuff like that. But uh, I'd always had an eye on doing play-by-play. And so at around the time that I was in school, I uh, met this girl online, and she lived in Texas. And we hit it off really well. And she was the vice president of the Booster Club for the Wichita Falls Wildcats. So uh, I'm like, all right, you know what? I'll see what I can do. Move down after graduation there. And so uh, moved down to after uh, finishing school. She was able to get me in to meet with the GM of the team. And he said, yeah, I mean, we've got uh, two volunteer broadcasters already, but there's a few games here and there where they can't cover it and we need someone. So, uh, yeah, if, you, if they can't make it or if they have an open spot, you're more than welcome to take it over. And so... I ended up becoming one of the uh, three broadcasters there for the first year and a half that I was there. One of them decided he didn't want to do it anymore because his son was just about to finish high school. He wanted more time with the family and everything. The other one was moving out of state. So I kind of ended up getting this position by default there by the uh, time the 2007 season rolled around. And uh, the problem was, though, it was kind of interfering a bit with my work with the radio station. And so at the end of the 07-08 season, I went to the uh, team owner. I said, look, there's all this other stuff that I can do for you if you hire me on full-time as broadcaster and whatever else. And he jumped to the opportunity, so I was able to get in and end up as the uh, as their full-time broadcaster at that point. Well, a, a smart move. If you can get, if you could con some guy into doing nine jobs for the pay of one, get him in there. Yep. That was, and that was my mistake. I mean, I, I was literally like, I ended up as the do-everything guy there. I mean, I spent a little bit of time, I was doing all the broadcasting, media relations kind of stuff. I was kind of the statistical liaison with the league at times. Um, what else? I was equipment manager for a little bit. I did some stuff in sales for a bit. I was the office receptionist. Um, God, I had to drive the van around all the time from the to and from the airport and hotels during tryout camps. I was even consulted on scouting decisions here and there at times. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I... I wore about 17 different hats, I think, for that organization. Oh, the, the joys of junior A hockey. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so you, um, yeah, so here, let's, well, let's jump into the booth. Like you said, it's, uh, yeah. you know, uh, mid-2000s, and, uh, you know, you're, you're down there in Wichita Falls. What, um, what, kind, what kind of setup do they have down there? Like in terms, in terms of the like rank the, and, bro- like the rank and everything? They have a really nice. Yeah, they actually have a really nice arena in Wichita Falls. It holds about 7,000, which for a junior A team in the United States, that's a pretty decent arena right there. It had just been built in 2002. And what's funny is when Wichita Falls first got hockey, it was for the, uh, it was in the 0203 season, and the rink had not yet been completed. So they had to play the entire first half of the season on the road. Yeah. They're, uh, their coach was having to have the, use the team van as his office, um, occasionally as an apartment. And then finally, when they finally got the arena open, they set a North American Junior A record for the largest crowd on hand for a game. I think it was, they brought in like 12,000 into that arena. So they had standing room only going out the door. They had to delay the start of the game by half an hour to get fans into it. And even, I mean, even then when the puck dropped, they were still filing fans in and having to line up anywhere they possibly could. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, 7,000 seats. Uh, the press box is not exactly great, unfortunately. They, uh, one side of the arena has about 10 uh, luxury suites up at the very top. 
And over the other end, there's nothing there. They literally built out of just a bunch of two-by-fours and some just whatever plywood a small broadcast booth, which was enough to hold a broadcaster, maybe two for each team up there. So uh, kind of some sparse... Uh, sparse accommodations up there, but I mean, it worked out. It was actually a lot better than some of the places that I had to call games from. Yeah, well, it's funny. Like I said, I was going going through the, the kind of, well, I'm not just on the 0708 page right now in Hockey DB, and mm-hmm. I mean, we're looking about, what, 20-some teams, and uh, man, kind of all over the place. I mean, you're up in Alaska, and Bismarck, and St. Louis, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, uh, you know, Topeka, and um, yeah, so how, how, well, how are the road trips? Road trips weren't too bad because uh, the way that the league usually set up, they try to keep you playing inside your own division as much as possible. So uh, we had a lot of trips from uh, Wichita Falls down to the uh, Texas Tornado. It was only about a two-hour drive, so that's a real easy one to make. I think we probably played them a good 12 times because of that. Um, Topeka is only about a six-hour drive. Um, the tough ones are once you, well, we also played, uh, we did play a little bit out of division. Like I think, I know we played St. Louis that year. I don't think we played Springfield that year, but we did the year before and the year after. But Springfield's about a 12-hour drive. That's the only one where we'd have to change drivers in the middle of the trip there to pull that one off. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, I never got to go on any of the Alaska trips. But uh, oh, South so Division that, that year. Yeah, that was oh, my next ahead. question. Did you get to Alaska? I didn't at all, unfortunately, because what would happen is the Alaska teams would pay for our flights up to there, and we would pay for their flights down to here. And so each team would only pay for 25 seats on those flights. So because of that, usually you'd have, you know, a 23-player roster and two coaches. That takes up everything. And they'd have their own broadcaster and everything as well, so you could still catch all the games with no problem. But um, I actually came close one year in the uh, 09-10 season. We actually, they had a 25-man roster that year, and we had three coaches. So we were already leasing, like, one of our coaches and two or three players home for that trip. But uh, when we went up there for a second time later in the season, uh, the head coach had gotten fired. The assistant coach took over as head coach. We had several players injured, and they actually had room on the flight that I could have gone up to this game, at, to the series, actually. And to make it even better, one of the games was an outdoor game in Fairbanks. Oh. And I would have I would have done anything to be able to broadcast that one. And unfortunately, two weeks before that trip, I came down with an ear infection, and there's no way I'm flying with that. Damn. So I had to end up having to miss that one. But, uh Everything I heard about said, yeah, it was a really great trip and everything. I mean, that was the worst year we had in team history that season, but it sounded like a fun trip at least. So, well, it was interesting. Like I said, um, this this uh, you know going through the league and the coaches and everything was kind of uh, the other night when I was researching. It's kind of some uh, I've seen some familiar names and actually coaching Wichita Falls and uh, right when you kind of start out was uh, Jack Bocas. And, uh, actually, that is, um, if you're looking on Hockey DB, that is actually an error. It's his brother, John Bogus, that was our head coach there. Well, see that blue, see, uh, Jack used to play for the Saskatoon Blades. See, well, yeah. that just wrecked my whole line of questioning right there. All right. Oh, no. Yeah, that's his uh, brother, actually. His uh, Yeah, they had brothers, Jack and John. People, uh, John says he always gets asked, you know, what was your mother thinking? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how she came up with that. Because usually, you know, John is short for Jack, or Jack's short for John. But they were both, uh, as far as I know, I mean, kind of similar players. John is, uh, I mean, just built like a bowling ball, basically. He played like it, too, from what I know about his uh, days playing youth hockey and juniors on through college and all that. But uh, he, the great thing about John was that he really valued tough hockey out there. And that was really needed in the NAHL South. For year after year down in that division, it was the Texas Tornado winning 
everything. And they were led by uh, Tony Curtali, who was a uh, former, I think he was with the Calgary Flames. Played a couple of games with them, mostly a minor league guy, but was in their organization. I think he's in the Blues org for a bit. But yeah, Curtali's teams were absolutely just nutcases out there. I mean, you'd be putting up 2,000, 3,000 penalty minutes a season. And I mean, this in our biggest penalized season in Wichita Falls, we had 1,700. So he had some really crazy ones out, but they were also super skilled, too. So, I mean, they'd go out and they'd kick your ass on both the scoreboard and in the corners. And so, eventually, our owner there in Wichita Falls got tired of that happening every year and said, all right, we're going to fight fire with fire, and brings in uh, John Bocas as his head coach. And they built up a really tough team there for that uh, first season that he had in uh, 07-08. Yeah, well, and that, and that's the thing. And what are the, uh, at that point, when you're there, what are the fight rules? Is it one and you're out? Or were you allowed to? We got pretty uh, we got pretty lucky there. You were allowed two fights before an ejection. Yeah. Um, along with there was no tie down rule at first. So I mean, all the jerseys had the tie down built in, but it wasn't required to be uh, put put on, put uh, around the pants or anything. Um, you could take the helmet off without getting penalized or anything like that. Um, it was fairly open. I mean, yeah. Second uh, second fight after uh, after one's already started, then there were ejections at that point. Uh, no leaving the bench, obviously, stuff like that, but. For the most part, it was fairly open, and uh, the fans down south there really appreciate that for sure. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I'm sure the fans aren't complaining about, despite what the media might like to portray, I, I know mm-hmm. first, the, the fans aren't complaining about this at all. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, that was, we used to do, we've had a, in Wichita Falls, we had Shepherd Air Force Base, is close by, it's like just on kind of the edge of town there. And so every year what we would do is we'd have a military appreciation night where we'd send buses over to Shepherd Air Force Base, pick up uh, people that are on base, bring them in, and let them watch a game for free. And uh, so that year we started wearing, like, camo jerseys. We'd raffle off after the game. And uh, But the players and fans, they knew what was expected when it's military night. The, fan, the fans out there, especially the guys from the base, want to see some fights. And, uh, yeah, they... They made it happen, and the opposing players too. They knew that. All right, this is their military night. Great, let's 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 get this going. Let's do this. Let's throw down. No, absolutely. And uh, I like you're saying before with the alumni. Of course, you had Lindros there. Who uh, it's funny looking at his. He played for CompuWare, and it's like you know. And it was he played at 16. He played 14 games, and he went on to the back to Oshawa and whatever. But yeah, 14 mm-hmm. game, 23 goals, 29 assists, 123 penalty minutes. In 14 games, it's just like, come on. Oh, yeah. You know, but you had, you had Doug Waite, Brian Ralston, uh, mm-hmm. you know, newer player, Ben Bishop, Patrick Kane came from there. And mm-hmm. uh, But in terms of toughness, uh, you know, we had Mike Segroy, Cam Jansons, Matt Nickerson, George Peros, who, mm-hmm. had thir- who had 30 goals in 54 games before going on to Princeton, uh, yep. John Scott, and um, a character I want to talk to you about, which the people will be familiar with. In the when you started up, I noticed here going through the standings and everything mm-hmm. that uh, the St. Louis Bandits seem to be the uh, the the uh, so-called Edmonton Oilers of the league in terms of dynasty teams. It looks like they were winning it every year. Um, mm-hmm. One of the characters on that team in fifty-seven games had forty goals in one hundred fifty-two minutes was Pat Maroon on the championship. Yeah, good old team. Pat. Yes. Um, yeah, he was. Uh, he actually started out in uh, playing roller hockey, if I remember right, in the St. Louis area, and uh, they discovered him in that. But uh, he was back when the team was still with uh, the team was originally started out in Texarkana, Arkansas, right on the Texas Arkansas border. And uh, but Kelly Chase was one of the team owners there, and so he had a lot of uh, connections there to St. Louis. So they did a lot of scouting out of there and saw him playing roller hockey and. 
the thing with Pat Maroon, when he was first starting out, and you may know recently he's had some problems with it as well, was that his weight, more than anything, was out of control. He was like 16 years old and about six foot and maybe 280 pounds. So everybody who saw him play is like, wow, this guy's got some skill. He's got a great shot, great hands, all this good stuff. But that weight is going to catch up to him. And so eventually they said, you know what? If you can get that under control, we've got a spot for you on this team. And eventually he's able to get down to like, he's still growing at this point. He's like 6'2 and gets down to about like 220, 230 or so. And they bring him in. And yeah, I mean, just like you rattle off the numbers there, he just started tearing it up there that season. Yeah, well, and like I said, as a broadcast, well, I guess you didn't really play St. Louis, like you said. I guess you didn't really see him all that much. We saw him a couple of games. Uh, we got, uh, I'm trying to think, 05-06, I think was his first year in the league, and uh, I would have seen him play a couple of games there with Texarkana. Then they moved to St. Louis, and they were out of our division, but since they were close enough, we still ended up playing them a couple times a year. So I did actually, yeah, did get to see him play live uh, quite a bit for at least one season or so. Yeah, and... Um... Yeah, and of course he was coached by it. Well, at the stats I'm like Jeff Brown, former Blues player, of course. Yep, and uh, and uh, another name that you may recognize uh, currently in the NHL, who was the head coach just before Jeff Brown, and that's uh, John Cooper. Yep, and that's now his coach actually in uh, Tampa Bay there as well. So oh, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's true. Look at this. We're connecting uh, six separations here, uh, or exactly six, or six degrees of separation. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, who was uh, who would you say was uh, kind of the main rival at the time for Wichita? It was always, always was, and always would be for its entire history. The uh, Texas Tornado would be the number one. I mean, you're only two hours away. You play each other twelve times a year, and I mean, they were the top dog in the league for what? I think it was the uh, they won the championship in I think oh four, oh five, and oh six. So you know, when your closest rival geographically is also the top team in the league, also the top penalty minute grouping in the league there you're going to have some bloodbaths on both sides there and yeah i mean we we had several games out there that had some just absolute craziness in there and i mean there's there's two that i can think of right off the top of my head at least well yeah well i've had her yep all right well first one would be the 0607 season which uh, would go on to be the first year the wildcats would ever miss the playoffs but uh texas had this Texas always had a couple of uh, tough guys in their lineup, and that year was no exception. There was this little guy named Justin King who was about 5'9", 150 or so, but he and our uh, leading scorer at the time, uh, Adam Cardwell, those guys fought each other probably a good four times over three seasons there, which for this league, that's quite a bit. I mean, you'd see a guy lead the league with 15 fights. So for two guys to go at it four times over the span of three years, that's quite a bit there. But uh, Justin King was one of the ones they had there. They had this other guy, uh, Adam Flink, who uh, I think he led the league in the 06-07 season. He had like 263 minutes in the box that year. And they also had a guy that uh, some of the junior experts out there might recognize, a guy named Paul Jovanic, who was out of the uh, – he played in the QMJHL and the OHL briefly. And uh, I think a couple of the other uh, junior A's there in Ontario. But he got brought down to the Tornado, and uh, Tony Curtelli immediately, of course, takes a shine to him and puts him out there. But – uh he was, I mean, he's one of those guys that's an absolute meathead, though. He had no skill whatsoever aside from punching guys in the face. Which, hey, I mean, obviously that's what we're here to talk about and everything, but still, that's uh, me a guy like an Adam Cardwell like we had there any day who's going to go out and put 30 goals and get 10 fights a year. But anyways, Jovanic was out there, and uh, this is a game we were playing down in Frisco against them, and uh, we had Cal Heater in goal, future... Uh, he played for the Flyers for a couple of games, mostly bounced around the minor leagues and everything, a little bit of a nutcase himself. But uh, Puck goes in behind the net, and uh, Jovanic goes in after that, crashes in the boards with somebody, and 
Buck goes back the other way. Jovanic's the other one left back there, and he just kind of like keeps his stick just hanging out there off the edge of the goal, and Jovanic just skates right into the butt end of his stick. Like, I mean, anybody could have seen this thing sitting there a little bit, like, oh, okay, I'm just going to avoid that. No, he skates right into the thing. Uses that as an opportunity to then say, all right, you're going to butt end me? Well, screw you. Here we go. And just goes after our goal. He touches off this huge brawl off there. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting one to start things out. But that was Heater's first fight. And, I mean, he was known for having several. He had one two years later, actually, after he had been traded to St. Louis. It was uh, my wife and I had our wedding earlier that day. And we scheduled for a Friday afternoon just so we wouldn't miss the game that night. Well, that's, that's and, uh, right there. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I even had somebody else there to be able to fill in on the broadcast for me so I could actually you know, spend, uh, spend all of our time there during the game with our wedding party, family and friends and everything. But um, so third period's going on. We're down, I think, 5-1 to one at that point. And uh, scrum happens off in the corner. And so uh, I was over talking to actually one of our player parents at that point as the scrum's going on. It's like, all right, cool. So I go back over to, our, to uh, my seat and off the face-off. Have you ever seen a goalie fight take place off of a face-off? I have not. This is the only time I've ever heard of it happening, but uh, after the scrum, puck drops, everybody skates to the bench, and the two goalies skate out to center to go at it, and it was Heater up against uh, Mike Jarbo for uh, for Wichita Falls at that point. And heck of a fight there, too, but I mean, that's the first time I've ever seen a uh, goalie fight right off of a face-off like that. But, uh, so yeah, I mean, Heater has a little bit of a, like you said, he's got a little bit of a nutcase tendency there in goal, but yeah, we like having him there, and I mean, if you're able to fight a guy there's like, what, 6'4", 220, or whatever Jovanic was, more props to you for that, even as a goalie. Now, this goalie fight that you're talking about, is there video of this? There is, actually. If you go on YouTube, um, i trying to think what it's going to be under. I might be able to find it real quick, because I've got it open in a window here. Ah. here. I know I had it linked on Drop Your Gloves. And yeah, here we go. If you look up just Cal Heater Fight, Heater being spelled H-E-E-T-E-R, It'll be the second one down. There you go. And uh, actually, the third one down is an AHL fight there when he was with uh, Adirondack, it looks like. But yeah, that first, uh, that one there with the just says goalie fight on it. It's Mike Jarbo versus Cal Heater, and that's the video of it there. But that's my one dream was always, call, was always to be able to call a goalie fight. And of course, the one night that it happens there, I'm not on the air. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll talk about you yelling at another goalie. Was that the story? Yep. <laughs> and, uh, we'll, we'll get into that shortly. Um, yeah. So, like you said, they're, so they're your big uh, big rivals, and uh, obviously, yeah. I'd imagine if you're up there, and of course, being around the guys and stuff, mm-hmm. I mean, you're part of the team too, and you're, you know, you, they're the boys, and when you're out there, and I don't want to say you went full Derek Sanderson, I'm sure, but I'm sure <laughs> there, there was some Homer-ish calls maybe going on. So if you're down in Texas or all this stuff is going on, are you, uh, and you, I'm sure you're getting fired up, are you giving it to the opposing announcer a little bit too? Like, do you ever get into it with a guy? Very rarely. Uh, for the most part, I got along with all the announcers in the league pretty well. Um, some better than others. There's actually one of them that I went to high school with, even in Cleveland there. But um, so Paul Teeple, who ended up as the voice of the uh, Mahoning Valley Phantoms and then later went over to the uh, Bismarck Bobcats and had a couple of stints with them. But, yeah, for the most part, I got along with the guys really well. The only exception was in New Mexico during the 09-10 season when I nearly dropped them with uh, an opposing broadcaster up in their press box because uh, it was actually their military night down there the night before. 
And so we had this kid playing our team named uh, Dakota Kletcha. Kletcha that year led the team in penalty minutes and in goals. In fact, he was, I think, two minutes in the box away from being the first player in like 15 years to have a 30-goal and 250-penalty-minute season. So that was a very well-rounded player there. And the crazy thing is he's one of those guys who was like, I think he was listed at, he was listed generously at like 5'9", 160 or so. But, I mean, he would drop him with pretty much anybody. And so uh, we played a Friday-Saturday series with him. And on Friday night, he ends up uh, fighting a guy there on their military night. And as they're going off to the box, he, you know, sees the military guys behind the penalty box and gives them a salute and all that. And so uh, the next night, we play them again. And they had this guy, can't remember the guy's name now who it was, but uh, ends up running Kletcher from behind headfirst into the boards. Like, could have just about killed the bastard. But, uh. So that happens. Um, touched off a little bit of scrum on the ice, and the broadcasters on uh, New Mexico's side are standing there laughing about this, doing this fake salute at him as he's being helped off the ice. It's like, I'm sorry, but you do not do that bullshit. I mean, that's just, leave that kind of stuff to the players if you're going to taunt somebody, you know. I mean, so when that happens, I'm like, oh, seriously, you're going to taunt this guy? He's laying there face down on the ice, has to be helped off. Are you going to sit there and taunt the guy just because of all this all this stuff? I mean, come on. That's, that's an absolute bullshit move. And I told him that uh, in pretty much those exact words during uh, during the stoppage. So uh, he gets back on the air, and uh, he and his broadcast partner are there, and his broadcast partner actually apologized and said, "Yeah, you know, we may have said some stuff that uh, we shouldn't have in there." And so then his uh, the guy that I was going yelling at there goes off on me on the air and says something about, uh, "Well, what do you want me to do? I can't really stop them from doing that stuff. I'm stuck up in the press box with your fat ass over there." I'm like, when I heard about that after the game, I nearly tracked him down and went after him right then and there. But, yeah, that was uh, that was the only broadcast I really had no respect for in that league, and that was the guys in New Mexico. And, I mean, shitty attitudes out of them. They didn't even try half the time on uh, getting player pronunciations right, getting any info right. It was just, I mean, it was just such a joke organization from top to bottom, and there's a reason why it only lasted two seasons in the league. Yeah, wow, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, when you start mocking a dude especially like yeah i mean you don't know how serious it is and i mean it's one thing if a guy took a dive and everyone sees it or whatever but when you can clearly right. see something like that yeah to kind of you know that's that's oh uh, yeah i don't blame you for getting fired up i would have got fired up too yeah yeah and uh and like you said dakota uh for anybody out there listening uh, actually he went on and played uh was it what uh playing in the sp sphl uh, with Peoria and Macon and Quad City that last year, and uh, yep. so he has gone on and well, he went to Ferris State for a few years, and uh, yeah, fifty six games, yep, fifty points, two hundred forty eight minutes. There you go. Yep. That's uh, doesn't get much more well rounded than that. Um, yeah, and that's what I like about Wichita Falls is that those kind of we end up with three different guys who are all kind of out of that mold. There, I mentioned Adam Cardwell earlier. I mentioned Dakota Kletcher right there. And one guy in between them was Adam Kuhn, who uh, led the league in penalty minutes one of those years. I think it was the 0809 season between us and uh, he started the season up in Motor City and then got traded down to us. But those three guys, they were all, you know, guys who could put in, you know, 20, 30 goals a season at times. They could put up, you know, 200 plus penalty minutes if they wanted to. They'd fight almost anybody. And I mean, they weren't like these, you know, 6'2, 230 monsters out there that you'd see. I mean, these guys are both, all three of those guys were under 5'10 and under 170 pounds. And, I think, honestly, it's a couple times on those rosters. They were even kind of over-listed in terms of size. Yeah, well, and like you said, and, uh, yeah, one, like any time you can find, uh, you know, any, I mean, those guys are unicorns, right? 
guys that will yeah. play play like physical, can score, and can fight. And yeah, that's why there is there's not too many of those guys around. That's for sure. Um, yeah. At this time, as you're as you're going around, like I said, uh, in terms of um, like what what are, overall in the league as you're traveling around, um, how are the buildings overall? Like, was it pretty? Uh, were they? You know, I'm, I mean, I'm sure with everything as great as the Wichita Falls building was, I'm sure there was a few barns that uh, were sort of uh, were playing their why kind of thing. But uh, mm-hmm. w- overall, what was the attendance like in most of the places? And uh, overall, the strength of the league when you were around was it was it pretty strong? It was pretty strong. I mean, we actually when I first started calling games in the league, they had maybe about twenty teams or so, and at one point they were up to I think somewhere well. Maybe even less than twenty at one point, but they got up into about you know twenty six, twenty seven teams, I think, at some points. But yeah, it varied so much though from one city to the next in terms yeah. of attendance figures, in terms of the building quality. I mean, just looking through, uh, got the eleven twelve schedule up on here, the eleven twelve standings, and uh, yeah, I mean, Corpus Christi honestly had my favorite building out of any of them that we were ever in. I mean, it was a very new building; it was built. To be able to house a team in, I think, the CHL at the time, um, it housed college basketball in it. It's just, I mean, it was probably the nicest arena, I would say, at least in the South Division, if not the entire league as a whole. And, I mean, you can't beat it. I mean, you're right there on the Gulf of Mexico. You walk outside the arena, and you're right on the beach just about. I mean, the hotel we stayed at was right near a beach. While players were morning skiing, I could literally just go and walk down the street and enjoy the palm trees, pretty much. So it was definitely my favorite place to go on any trips. Uh, New Mexico, nice arena, terrible place though um it was they had the arena out in the middle of nowhere far away from the actual city center and everything um then at the opposite end of the spectrum i gotta say springfield illinois was one of the worst ones ever to deal with both as i mean just in terms of the whole atmosphere of the place and in terms of the uh, broadcast setup because uh it was they say on their website that they have an nhl sized rink i don't think it was it seemed like it was a lot shorter i don't think it was a full 200 feet long that's for sure the uh, ceiling was fairly low, and so it felt like you were playing inside of a shoebox, pretty much. You'd see a puck get knocked up in the air, and off it's out of play because it hit the ceiling. You'd have that happen three times a game out there. So, sounds like but, moose uh, jar. It sounds like the moose jar rink with the crushed can. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It looks like the roof is going to touch the ice. Yeah. It's kind of like a knockoff saddle dome-ish kind of look. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, what, what was great is, I mean, Hey, that's going to up your hitting and everything. Cause, I mean, you have less room to move out there. You're going to see more hits and all that stuff. But it was just, I mean, pure hell to try to play in, though, to actually, you know, try to open the game up at all. But uh, to make it worse on the broadcasting, I had been warned before I went to call my first game there. One of the uh, guys who had been there before said, yeah, you're probably going to have to sit up in the stands and just, you know, drop your cord down to plug in the phone line and the power line and all that stuff. And fortunately, the first time I went there, they said, oh, yeah, here, we've got this, you know, little raised spot. There was a spot where they could, you know, have wheelchairs come up there and actually be able to see over the boards and all that. So they said, you know, we don't really use that much. You can go ahead and put the table here and broadcast off there. So that worked great. Then the second time I went in, they're like, no, you can't be up there. That's, you know, ADA regulations. We have to have that open. So they moved me even further down. So I was inside the blue line of our own defensive zone trying to call this game and <laughs> get the puck down to the opposite end of the ice. And it's in the corner. It's like, well, I don't know where the puck is. I don't know who's even down there. You're just going to have to bear with me until it gets dug out and hopefully comes back down this way. And so made that a pure hell. Once in a while, they had this they had this kind of like ballroom type thing that overlooked the arena, and if that wasn't being rented out for use that night, I could usually go and set up up in there. I couldn't hear any announcements at all, so it's like, okay, yeah, they just scored a goal. I don't know who that was that scored it, necessarily. Was that deflected? I don't know. We'll find out later, hopefully, but 
Yeah, anytime we had a trip out to Springfield, it's a 12-hour bus ride there. It's a 12-hour bus ride back. It's a terrible place to have to call a game from. So I was perfectly happy anytime that I saw them not on the schedule for a year. And we actually, well, yeah, coming back from there once, we actually had our bus break down in the middle of Missouri, had the transmission drop on it. So it made for an even slower trip back after that. The joys of the iron lung. Uh, oh, yeah. What, um, what fans were the, were, the, were the rowdiest in the NAHL? I think you pretty much have to give that one by default to uh, Topeka. They had this crew that uh, they just called them the Bucket Brigade. And they would get these, like, five-gallon plastic buckets and a big sticks and sit behind the opposing bench and hold the buckets right up above, right where the glass ends. Not going over the glass, you know, can't get kicked out of the arena for that, so they would hold it right up, right to the edge of the glass and eat on these buckets, especially anytime there's a timeout we're trying to, you know, talk strategy at the bench. So those guys always be getting crazy back there. They'd have usually a few taunting everybody at the penalty box and stuff. Fun environment, but uh, definitely not something you want to be on the other side of as the opposing team. That That is just uh, a Don Jackson over the glass, punch the mascot, waiting to happen situation. Did anybody I'm in the bucket brigade get smacked? None of them got actually smacked, but one of them did. Um, I think they were playing against Corpus Christi, come to think of it, and... Uh, of course, because he had Brent Hughes as their coach, you know, the former uh, Bruins yeah. quasi-tough guy there. And at one point, he started banging on the glass and yelling at them, and the glass gave way and ended up falling onto the guys there. But no, nobody actually was able to go over the glass after them, as far as I know, at least. Well, it's funny, because one of the coaches while you were there was, of course, uh, ex-NHL you know, enforcer and not afraid to put up the penalty minutes with Paul Baxter. Yeah. I can't believe Paul, ba- Paul Baxter never went over the glass with these people. You know, it's so shocking. I mean, you look at Paul Baxter with a 409 penalty minute season there with the Penguins in the early 80s, and he's like the most soft spoken guy ever. I mean, we had uh, he coached in Wenatchee there for two and a half seasons, and then when he got fired midpoint of that season, our owner started uh, trying to get him down to Wichita Falls and eventually agreed to a deal with him and brought him in there, but. You know, you think, you know, it's total nutcase or anything like that, but you see him behind the bench. I don't think I ever saw him get kicked out of a game at all. I barely ever saw him even argue with an official. And just, I mean, even talking to the guy, it was just he had this very, very calm way of putting anything just about. And we had uh, one series, I think it was down in Corpus. I forget exactly where it was. We had a long bus ride ahead of us back. And uh, usually on the bus, the head coach would get the front row of seats. The assistant coaches would each get the second rows. Third row would be your broadcaster and your equipment manager if you had one. Fourth row would be open and to put, like, you know, a cooler for drinks or a uh, pre- post-game meal, something like that. I remember one where we got absolutely shelled in a couple of games. And uh, sitting there just, you know, I don't even know, probably just reading or something. And Paul looks back at me, just looks at me, goes, Drew, would you mind please moving back a row? And I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's Sure. It was, just, it was kind of unnerving, really, just how calm he was for knowing a guy that, you know, did all the stuff on the ice in the NHL, and uh, just for him to be that calm, it's like, this almost a little bit scary when he gets, you know, quiet and calm like that. It's like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll move back to the fucking last row if you want me to. I mean, yeah, just don't do that again, man. Did, um, over, overall, like, uh, did you, I, you know, being a hockey guy and everything else, and a, a Penguins fan, of course, um, did yeah. you ever... You had to have bent his ear to get some stories from him. A little bit. Usually I would just kind of, you know, sit back and observe. It would be, you know, more of the assistant coaches talking to him about stuff and things would come up. But one of my biggest points that he vindicated my opinion on, 
uh, they actually asked him because you know he was part of the uh, the battle for Alberta and everything as a member of the Flames there for a long time. So he played against the Gretzky era Oilers. Yep. He also would have played against Mario Lemieux a little bit early in his career and everything. And they asked him. They said, "Well, who out of those two? Because that's that's always the big debate, you know, from 1980s hockey is who is the better of the two, Wayne Gretzky or Mario Lemieux?" And he didn't even need to pause or without question, he said Mario Lemieux was easily the more skilled out of the two of them. I'm like, thank you, finally, somebody, so I finally have a legitimate uh, former NHLer who's played against them, who can, who's who got this opinion, so a little bit of vindication there, I guess. There you go, yeah, um, yeah, well, it's funny, just kind of looking through the, through the, uh, um, what am I trying to say here, the coaches, um, you know, yeah. you got, uh, uh, you got, uh, you know, uh, of course, Paul Baxter, and then uh, Paul Gillis, um, like you said, mm-hmm. Brent Hughes, uh, Jeff Brown, as we said, Marty Murray up in Minot mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, I mean, lots of, uh, Justin Quinville, really? Yep. He was, uh, he played in, I, I don't think he ever got above the minor leagues at all, but, uh, yeah, Justin Quinville was a uh, coach in Corpus there for a bit. And, um, who was the name you were throwing out? I'm trying to think now. We were talking off air here. Um, oh, Dennis Williams. Dennis probably. Williams. Um, yeah, yeah, because um, it was funny because he is now, of course, uh, coaching the Everett Silvertips in the Western Hockey League. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was your what was the story there? Well, this goes back to uh, what we were talking about earlier with my uh, infamous quote that nearly got me fired was uh, talking about that goalie fight there. So, uh, like I said, my all time biggest thing that I wanted to be able to do at some point in my broadcasting career was to get to call a goalie fight. So the uh, 2010-2011 season rolls around, and uh, early on in the year, we nearly had one while we were down in Amarillo. Both goalies skated out willingly to do this during, a, during this whole big kind of line brawl going on. The referee gets in between them and says, no, go back to your goals. And they're like, okay, fine. They reluctantly skate back. But uh, later on in the season, we play against uh, Amarillo in our building. And so we had this fairly rough first period. So I think we're down two to nothing at that point. There had already been three fights in the opening period at this point. So uh, what I had heard happened was uh, now downstairs, underneath the stands there, where backward locker rooms are, there's only a curtain separating the visiting locker room from the home locker room. So uh, when you get a game kind of like that, there's going to be a lot of yelling going back and forth and probably some extra security to try to make sure that uh, nothing else happens there. But what I had heard happened, Amarillo basically said, all right, hey, let's just settle this right now. Off the opening face, off of the second, put your five toughness out there, we'll put our five toughness out there, and we'll just have at it there. So they're talking about it in the locker room, and uh, two goalies are sitting there, and uh, our starter and our backup are talking. He's like, oh, yeah, you could, you could totally get, uh, get a Nick Forzerba there to go. And it's like, nah, nah, he's not going to do it. There's pitching a shutout right now. There's no way he's going to do it. So it's like, all right, fine. Backup says, put me in to start the period. I will get him to go. At least I will try to get him to go. And so they're like, all right, fine. So. They come out to start the period, and I didn't notice that uh, we put our backup, Eric Garavaglia, in there at all. But uh, getting ready to announce, you know, okay, you know, start the second period here, and out there to start here for the Wildcats, a mixed line, uh, you know, rattle off the guys that are out there. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. Those guys haven't played together at all. And I look over on the Amarillo side, and they've got their five toughest out there. It's like, oh, okay, we're about to see something right off this opening faceoff, I think. And sure enough, right as soon as the puck drops, bam, ten pairs of gloves and sticks all hitting the ice, and everybody pairs off and goes. So, uh, Garrett Bagley escapes out to the blue lines, like, all right, come on, come on, let's go, let's do this, let's let's get out here, Zerba, let's do this. So, uh, 
Nick Forzerba there wants absolutely nothing to do with it at all. He's not even, you know, responding to his calls to try to get him down there. And so I see this going on. I've got ten fights going on, or five fights going on in front of me that I don't know which one to focus on at this point. And suddenly I see our goalie challenging their goalie, and I just lost it at that point because, I mean, who the hell is this Amarillo goalie to deny me my birthright? Basically, <laughs> is how I was doing it. And so I'm just screaming at him, you know, come on, you would get out there. Do it! Just, you know, going nuts on the guy. And he doesn't fight him at all. The fights eventually end up getting broken up and everything. Everybody's sent to the box. And uh, the way they did it on the penalties was they said, all right, um, since everybody, you know, paired off willingly, it wasn't like a secondary altercation. We do have to have some ejections here. Each team gets to pick out of their five penalized players. One gets to stay in the game. The other four get ejected. So they did all that, got that all separated, and uh, didn't really think much of it at first. You know, it's like, all right, yeah, you know, okay, I got a little crazy there. I apologize later in the game for, you know, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. But so I'm sitting in the office about a week later, and uh, our business manager says, hey, Drew, you got a second? I'm like, oh, yeah, no problem. So I come in. She says, shut the door behind you. And at that point, I'm thinking, okay, this probably isn't good. Yeah, that's not good. When you're so, told uh, to shut the door behind you, that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it was a game day, so I knew that I wasn't going to get fired right then and there, at least. I mean, because they wouldn't have anyone to call the game that night. But uh, So I close the door, and she says, uh, yeah, what do you know about uh, this? And she turns her computer screen to me, and there's the video of my call of the fight there that had gotten picked up by the Puck Daddy blog on Yahoo Sports. So what's his name? Uh, Greg Wyshynski put it up there, you know, did this article on it and everything. Apparently, when they put that article up, somebody had gotten it and sent it to uh, League Commissioner Mark Frankenfeld. And uh, Frankenfeld then sent it on to our team's owners and was like, what the hell are you guys doing here in with all this stuff? Now, uh, so basically, yeah, it was a, uh, yeah, this, so this is out there, just so you know. Um, so a couple weeks later, I ended up meeting with the team owner after it all kind of blown over a little bit. I got actually really lucky because about a week later, Springfield's broadcaster said some unsavory stuff about Topeka's head coach on the air made this big deal about, you know, suspending himself in the air indefinitely and all this and all that, and his indefinite suspension lasted a single weekend. So uh, but um, so I get called into this meeting with the owner a couple weeks later, and he basically gave me the speech of, that was absolutely hilarious. Don't ever, ever do it again, though. Because uh, the league technically should have fined me for my comments on there. But we were already getting fined enough because we were using the spotlights during the fights on the fighters. We were uh, sounding off the goal horn with the fights and everything. Apparently those are massively banned under either NAHL or USA Hockey rules. So we were already getting, we were already getting fined heavily for that and for, you know, five premeditated fights going on all at the same time. So because of that, the league thought it would be too much to try to, you know, throw another couple hundred or thousand or whatever dollars on top of it for my comments. So, uh, I got away with that one, really, but, uh, both my, uh, funniest and probably not my proudest moment ever of my career, but, uh, about a year later, the New York Times did this article on uh, fighting in hockey, especially focusing on junior hockey. They're talking a lot about the uh, Fresno Monsters. It was one of the other NAHL teams that did a lot of, uh, you know, kind of a, talking about them and fights and all that. And at the very end of the article, I'm quoted anonymously in there in the uh, Do It You Wuss line and all that stuff. So I guess, you know, I kind of made it. I got quoted in the New York Times for something hockey-related, but uh, not how I was ever expecting to, that's for sure. No, well, and it's funny because I can remember, of course, that video, of, of course, got lots of play on fried chicken. Yeah. And, yeah. uh... It's actually through their account is where it got uploaded. Yeah, yeah well, I can tell you, uh, from, that's where I saw it, and, uh, yeah. and I know Drew was, uh, the conquering hero of fried chicken. You were definitely a, yeah. a popular member at that point. Yeah, we actually, uh, um, what's his name, Gil, 
from the board or Fatiu. I'm not sure what he went by where, but he went by both of those at various points. He actually emailed the team and said, hey, that broadcast is a, is a breath of fresh air and I'd like to buy one of your jerseys. So we at least made a couple bucks off it off a jersey, I think, at some point there. But uh, anyways, what I was thinking about Dennis Williams there, I from, totally, totally got off topic there from that part. But uh, the next time that we played against uh, Amarillo at home, I was uh, getting done with the, my broadcast, packing up my stuff, and as I'm walking down to go downstairs to help out with the uh, post-game skate, I was, in addition to all those other things, I was also the post-game skate monitor and rules enforcer basically out there. But uh, as I'm going downstairs, Williams accosts me in the hallway there on the concourse and goes bitching at me about how I need to call up his goalie and apologize for what I said and this and that and the other. It's like, okay, number one, your goalie's hurt a lot worse on the ice. And number two, fine, I'll apologize to him as soon as you apologize to, for ripping us off on the Sean Keen trade. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever, walked off. So, yeah, Dennis Williams, not exactly my uh, best buddy in that league, that's for sure. Look at this, you're just, uh, you're just making friends wherever you go here. Oh, yeah, I always do, always do. <laughs> yeah, got heat with Dennis and, uh, yeah, run you out of New Mexico and, oh, I'll tell you. Yep. Yeah. It is good, though, because, I mean, looking through, actually, back through a lot of stuff, I got a lot more positive comments from opposing fans and player parents than I ever got complaints from any of them. So it's like, all right, I'm probably doing at least something right there in terms of, you know, calling games fairly evenly, aside from the uh, occasional blowouts like those. Well, hey, as long as they're talking about you. Exactly. There's no such thing as bad publicity. Exactly. No, I was going to ask you, like, it was interesting. I know, uh, you know, just to kind of, kind of, as it kind of parallels what I was doing here, I can't remember what episode I was talking about this, but just in terms of preparation and stuff, like when I do an interview show, like I said, I I went through the NHL before I talked to you, or if I'm talking to a player, you know, you look up their fight card and where they played and all that stuff. Um, in terms of, um, and like I said, I've heard lots of, I've listened to lots of podcasts, and uh, the, to me there are some ones that are frightfully unprepared, and I don't know how, I don't know how anybody hits record and does that but anyway uh, in terms of your preparation um, how were how diligent were you and uh, was it a was it a big deal to you it was because I mean my goal early on was I eventually wanted to be able to get up to being able to broadcast in you know the ECHL AHL NHL eventually if I possibly could and so the more professional I could make everything sound even at the lower junior levels like this, the more professional I can make it sound, the better off it was going to be. I mean, I could put together a really great demo tape off of that. So when it really started for me was around uh, right after, the, usually right after we'd have our main tryout camp, because that's when you finally start to realize, okay, here's the guys who are going to make this team this year. I can start going through and looking and seeing, okay, you know, what kind of numbers did they put up last year or the year before in, you know, a junior B league or in midgets or wherever. Um, what are they doing in high school even? Who do they have fights against with, you know, whatever team they were with last year? Anything like that. I try to put together, like, a page on each player into this binder and everything so I could have all sorts of notes on it. Um, I would try to go through and do the same kind of similar stuff for the opposing teams, but not quite as much. But when it came down to just, like, weekly preparation for a game, we usually would play a Friday and a Saturday. I'd have to host our radio show usually on Tuesday night. So Monday I would usually have to recap the previous week and send out this, you know, email to all of our... Uh, all the fans who subscribe to our newsletter, recap the game, see what our uh, former players and alumni are doing at the college or pro levels or wherever, preview the upcoming games, all that. Tuesday, I'd be putting together my radio show notes, and then it usually would start on, like, Wednesday or so. That's when I go through and say, okay, I need to get the roster for both teams, put into my, uh, put in my line chart, um, put together my score sheet, and just, you know, any kind of notes through there. Look through and say, okay, 
this guy put up, you know, two goals and assists last time they played against us. Bam, put that in there as a note to really remember to bring up in there. These two guys fought each other, you know, two months ago when we played them last. Okay, put that one in there as well. This guy leads the team with 10 fights. This guy leads the team with 160 penalty minutes. Whatever I could, just anything like that. And fortunately, all of our stuff was through point streak. So I just go through and very easily have everything right at hand with just one click onto their tech stats page. I could see, okay, this is how they've done against us this season. That's how, this is how we've done against them this season. And so fortunately, that made it a lot easier than it could have been if I had to sit down, you know, pull out a box score from every single game and go through and tally it up by hand. No, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I was just curious because it was funny because I was on Twitter the other morning and uh, I was, it was early in the morning and I was watching an old Bruins fight DVD. And of course, mm-hmm. I had tw- I was on my phone and texting or t- uh, tweeting at the same time. And of course, I'm yeah. bitching about Derek Sanderson, right? Ob- oh yeah, obviously. Yep. You know, hey, J- Jay Miller's just out here to play hockey. You know, this this yeah. shit, right? And it was just like, yeah. oh my god, and like no Bruins lost a fight in five years, and on and on. Yep. But I was just wondering. The biggest thing I think of is uh, Miller Miller getting these lefts raining down on him from Cordic, and he's sitting there saying, well, I think you have to just give the decision so far to Jay Miller. And it's like, no, no, you don't. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, yeah, I just feel so bad for Jay. He just wants to play hockey, and Nyland just wants to fight. No, yeah, settle down. But um, yeah. I was going to, like, when you're, when you're doing the announcing, are you, um, one, are you aware to – are you trying not to sound Homer? I mean, it's hard to do, right? Because you want the boys to win. And you're like, you're friends with these guys. So obviously you want them to do well. But at the same time, nobody wants to be Sanderson, right? So how hard was that? And plus, do you have the owner, everybody telling you? Like, obviously they're trying to tell you to be like, you know, pro Wichita, you know. But I know I've listened to something like my brother played junior back in the old radio days. So I can remember listening to the radio and some of these announcers, I mean, you thought it was you, you thought it was an inter squad game, you know, because yeah. they never mentioned the other team once, right? You know, but uh, yep. how aware of that were you, or were you aware of it, or you know, what was the whole process there? I would try to be very aware of that because uh, part of the problem with the, the junior levels there was that we wouldn't always have an opposing broadcaster traveling on the road, so. Uh, yeah. I mean, just like looking through, for example, on some of these. Now, uh, Amarillo always brought their broadcasters. Topeka always brought theirs. Texas brought theirs. Odessa brought theirs. Corpus. New Mexico never brought their guy. And the Alaska teams and uh, Wenatchee and all those never brought theirs. St. Louis never brought theirs either, nor did Springfield. So when you're having to be the only voice out there, you want to try to keep it as even as you possibly can. I mean, treat it like, you know, you're the ESPN or TSN or whoever guy there where you're trying to call it for both teams. But at the same time... You do have to expect some degree of homerism a little bit in there, oh, yeah. but it's like that's like I was mentioning before on there was uh, I'd actually gotten more compliments than complaints from opposing fans about how I called games, and I definitely took pride in that because I mean if if you can see how I'm calling a game and realize that no, I'm not trying to you know be totally one sided on there. That's the biggest thing that I'm trying to do out there. I don't want to be like uh, I don't remember who I'd heard it from. It may have been one of our NAHL guys, but. uh somebody ended up getting screamed at by a team owner when they were on the radio saying, none of our guys ever lose a fight on the radio. Because, you know, the fans at home can't see it, so you can, you know, pump it up as homeristically as you want to at all. But, I don't know, I just I didn't want to do that. I didn't see why I should do that. So, yeah, I would just try to keep it as close to down the middle as I could. Obviously going to fall a little bit, you know, toward the Wildcats and everything. But, yeah, for the most part, it was something I intentionally would try to do. Just, I mean, it's a lot better that way anyways, I think. I mean, yeah, you can... 
you'd certainly expect a degree of homerism, but yeah, no, no Jack Edwards, no uh, Sanderson, none of that. I mean, that's just well, those guys are way too over the top for my liking. Yeah, well, and it was funny because. I mean, obviously, I wasn't watching Wichita games at the time, but I can remember you yeah. putting up a lot of fight clips and stuff, yeah. and I remember watching them. And even recently, when you sent me that link there to those those other ones, um, yeah. and yeah, you called it down the middle. Like, you called yeah. it like it was a fight, like a fan mm-hmm. calling a fight, of, or like an independent fan, I guess, calling a fight. You know, and it was... Uh, it, and that's it's funny because it, it sounds that, but I mean, I've watched a million hours of hockey fights, and uh, there's a lot of dudes that were all that will always, you know, paint that'll always go Homer. So it was mm-hmm. it, it was refreshing to hear down the middle anyway. Yeah, it's one that I wish I could find. It's on that DVD that uh, I was going to try to watch my uh, my old DVDs of the NHL fight this week, and I can't find what the hell I did with the things. But um, there's one. It's actually you can find it on YouTube with uh, it's uh, the Texas Tornadoes broadcaster calling it. But on the DVD, it's got my call of it. But um, it's just funny because this goes back to you know talking about drop your gloves there, and unfortunately, kind of the uh, one of the downsides of drop your gloves is that anybody can can review a fight on there. Yeah. And so we had this one in uh, the I think it was the ten eleven season. Yeah, it was the ten eleven season with uh, Rodney Lalonde of the Texas Tornado who's one of the better fighters to come out of the league in the last few years, going up against uh, Stephen Hoshaw for Wichita Falls. He's our captain that year. And uh, the Tornado broadcaster and I both called it exactly the same way, and it was a definite TKO win for Hoshaw there, because Lalonde outlanded him a lot early in that fight. I mean, this is a battle of the heavyweights in this one. They're both slugging away, and I would have given the edge to Lalonde early on, but then uh, Hoshaw came through this one and just flattened um, Lalonde with it. Lalonde gets up, he's skating off bleeding, and uh, two people on Drop Your Gloves call it a draw. Yeah. <laughs> it, turns out they were, it turns out they were related to Lalonde, so there oh, you go, there that you explains go. it. So, yeah, but, I mean, that's, I mean, if, and I've seen plenty that were on the, on, with the exact opposite way, because we had the uh, same guy, Hoshaw, the year before, had fought uh, Andrew Christ of Wenatchee. And, again, kind of the same fight, you know, two heavyweights going there and both slugging away, and Chris caught him with a big one, and if he yeah, Hoshaw wanted to put a scratch corny off it, so he ended up landing his punch right to the eye on him. And it's like, as soon as that punch lines, it's like, ooh, yeah, that, that fight just turned right there. I'm, you know, I'm going to call it the way that it is out there. I'm not going to just, you know, try to make something up or make excuses at all. I mean, it's like, yep, he ate that one, and he's going off for repairs right now. So, I mean, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, and like you said, yeah, you went through Bocas and uh, going back to the coaches here and uh, Mark LaRose. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, we had uh, Baxter. Um, did you kind of did they sort of uh, for the most part did the guys leave you alone and kind of just let you do your thing or did they ever talk to you about your broadcasting for the most part yeah they uh, just let me just do whatever I want as long as I'm not you know bitching guys out on the air or anything like that then anything pretty much is just fine you know don't uh, don't do anything stupid on the air basically was the uh, rule kind of across the whole way there but uh I mean, the only times I can think of where anything bad happened at all in there, other than, you know, the uh, do-it-you-wuss incident there. Um, there are a few times, I mean, the problem was, though, that, and people started getting a little bit tired of it, was that if the guys were out there playing like shit, I was going to say they were out there playing like shit. And uh, eventually people did not like that. I mean, obviously I couldn't say exactly that on the air, but, you know, if they were, play- if they were having a bad game, I was going to say so. And people kind of did start to get a little bit tired of that at times. That's part of the reason why I got out of it. I mean, I can... 
I can go on for a while on how on how and why I got out of it, but I won't get into that here just yet or anything. But no, I mean the only time I can think of um there's one time where I accurately quoted Bocus in our team newsletter and he didn't like that I accurately quoted him. So it's yeah. like okay, what the what the hell do you want me to do now at that point? So but yeah, I mean the only uh Literally bad one I could think of was after, because uh, I mentioned you know, we had those military appreciation night games, and uh, we had this one against Fairbanks in the 07 08 season that ended up with this uh, line brawl in the third period. And we somehow end up down on a full two minutes of five on three penalty kill after a line brawl where every single fight during it seemed to be fully consenting of everybody involved. So, uh, Fairbanks ends up scoring on that. We were up 3 nothing at that point. Uh, Fairbanks scores to make it 3 to 1 on the power play. They score just after the power play ends to make it 3-2. to two. They pull their goalie and score with three seconds left to tie the game, and ten seconds into overtime, they win it. So, uh, post-game interview, Bocas comes up to the uh, press box there, and so I hand him over the other headset, and I say, well, coach, uh, tough way to go out on that one, and he looks at me and says, yeah, well, it's really tough to do anything when you get told dickhead of a ref out there, I don't give a shit if the league finds me for saying it. He says this right on the air. <laughs> and I'm just like, kind of stuck, just stunned there. I'm like, well... The good news is that uh, they had already cut off our feed to uh, the B2 network, so it wasn't going to be heard by the league at all, fortunately. Unfortunately, it was still going out over the air in Wichita Falls uh, live on the radio out there. So it's like, well, we don't have to worry about a league, fine, but uh, FCC might be on us after that. Now, fortunately, nobody complained, and actually the fans really liked that he actually came right out and said that. But, yeah, I mean, when you get a coach that says something like that, he really doesn't have a whole lot of room to make any critiques of your broadcast at that point. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, they they for the most part just kind of let me do my thing, and if they never got any complaints from anyone, it's like, all right, yeah, I mean, if we're not getting any complaints, then you're probably doing an okay job. So hey, have at it. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and then, I mean, they're busy with the hockey side of things. They could probably give two shits with a guy up in the booth saying anyway. But right, I actually got one other thing that I forgot to mention among the uh, fun incidents there with involving us and the uh, Texas Tornado was. Uh, this kid playing for us named Adam Sponsler during the uh, 07, 08, and 08, 09 season. He got traded midway through that second season there. But uh, he was another guy. He's, I don't know, I mean, he was uh, one of those guys that was like a million-dollar talent, 10-cent head, unfortunately. And uh, he could go out there. I mean, he had the ability. He was another one of those guys who had probably the skill to go out there and, you know, put up 20, 30 goals a season and, you know, 10 or 12 fights or so. But uh, just couldn't couldn't get his head right for the most part. We actually acquired him knowing that he had to serve a 10-game suspension when we first got him for a, dropping a racial slur on an opponent the season before. But um, So we finally get you know, around to getting back in and playing a normal shift and everything. And uh, So we're playing this one game against Texas at home, and he gets hit behind the net, a little bit from behind, nothing really too severe or anything, though. But uh, he's down on the ice there uh, trying to get up, and the guy who hit him is kind of holding him down a little bit and actually ends up ripping his helmet off as well. So finally, the guy's like, all right, fine, skates away. And so the sponsor gets up helmetless at this point. He's like, oh, yeah, you're not going to do this to me. And chases him down all the way to center. Cross-checks him in the back three times, trying to get him to turn around and fight him. Referee finally has to, at the third one, he's like, all right, fine, I have to call at this point. Puts the hand up, whistle blows when the puck gets touched up, and sponsor just jumps the guy right then and there. And this is one of the few times in my life where I can say that I've seen a guy jump someone and then lose the fight. But sponsor ended up losing this fight against the guy. They go to the box. Referee is, you know, getting penalties sorted out. Sponsor is still steamed in the box, still, you know, screaming at uh, the guy for the tornado there. And so just out of nowhere, he starts throwing all of his gear into the crowd. <laughs> he takes his own helmet, throws it up into the stands, followed by both of his gloves, 
followed by his elbow pads and I think his jersey. Eventually, they get returned down to the box there to him, and the ref comes over and is like, all right, yeah, that's, you're definitely gone now after that one. I mean, he's already going to get you know cross-checking or instigating or something for it, and then you do all that on top of it. So as he's on his way out of the box, no, they returned, his, they returned his gloves to him, and he threw his gloves out on the ice then after that. That's where it was. But yeah, just throw all the stuff up in the stands, down on the ice, all that. As he's being escorted off, the linesmen have to escort him away. He's trying to get over at the tornado bench and challenge all of them. Just, I mean, throwing all of his crap everywhere. He finally gets uh, off the ice. By the time they close the door there, he's still banging on the glass, screaming at the ref. Ends up with 47 points, which I think is, may still be a team record for the Wildcats. I know at least it was by the time I left them in uh, 2013. But, yeah, he ended up getting a three-game suspension for the league off of it and then another three from the team on top of it just so it's like, well, we're going to be in Alaska anyway. We're not going to take you know for half to be able to play only half the trip. But yeah, good old Adam Sponsler there. <laughs> there you go. Well, like you said, you yeah. you had taken the radio school and everything else. I, I should have actually asked you this first, but um, when you get when you get into calling the games and you're the guy up in the booth and because uh, that's the thing. I mean, everybody who's ever kind of had whatever play by play dreams or radio dreams because I've I've told people before um, initially when I was out of, getting out of high school. I had thought about going into radio and, I mean, not so much play-by-play stuff, but radio in general. But this is the early 90s, right? And this is before, obviously, satellite radio and sports radio. Like, we didn't have sports radio here in Saskatoon. And I was never really much of a, like, a music... I didn't want to be, like, the music DJ guy, per se, but but you just didn't see, going forward, the horse of satellite radio and that whole boom. So I never actually pursued it. So I always say this is like podcasting, sort of like me living out my radio dream, so to speak. Um, right. But when you got into the play-by-play, what was sort of the biggest? Um, what was sort of the biggest uh, surprises to you, and when did you actually start feeling comfortable doing it? It really took me kind of a couple of years because uh, when I first started doing it, I didn't really have anybody to kind of learn the learn the ropes from it all. We didn't have, like, a course in play-by-play at Emerson or anything like that. I mean, there's only one sports journalism class at all. It seems to be a lot more uh, print journalism-focused rather than broadcast. So, actually, I signed up to take it. I think I took one of the classes there. I'm like, no, this is not going to be what I want to do and switched out of it to do a different uh, answer to history class in its place and did my uh, big uh, broadcast or journalism-related kind of capstone class later on. But, um, yeah, it was just, I mean, I didn't have anybody with experience to learn off. It's just like, okay, well, I have to, you know, think, what have I heard other broadcasters do and uh, try to mimic that, essentially. And I think it actually kind of worked out a little bit in my favor because it meant that I was kind of drawing on influences from all sorts of sports. It wasn't just, you know, going off of, okay, you know, pay attention to what uh, Rick Jenner and Mike Lang and all those guys do. It was going into, uh, I mean, I could kind of grab some elements of, like, Ernie Harwell in baseball or uh, Jim Donovan from the Cleveland Browns in football. And so there's a couple of elements here and there that they would use in their broadcasts, and I would kind of put into mind. Like, any time that, because uh, usually we'd have kind of a simulcast of both the internet video and also a, a radio feed. And one of the things Jim Donovan would always mention is right before the open kickoffs, he'd describe what uniforms both teams are wearing. And so I would do exactly the same thing, you know. Wildcats are in their home black uniforms, red and white trim on those, white numbers on white numbers and letters on the back, and then describe the opponents as well. And he would always mention, uh, anytime the Browns had the ball, he'd say, you know, okay, Browns traveling left to right across your radio dial, and I would use the same thing. I'd say, all right, second period, Wildcats could be going left to right across your radio dial, and just things like that. With Ernie Harwell, his biggest thing was with baseball, he would say, 
you don't want to fill in every single second. You need to let the game breathe, let the game speak a bit on its own. And with hockey, there's so much going on that you almost can't let that happen sometimes. But at times, taking a pause for just a moment or slowing down your delivery just a little bit can really help that out. And so just, you know, kind of having to discover it on my own, I think, really kind of helped me out a bit with it. But, yeah, it really wasn't until maybe about the 2009 or thereabouts, once I'd been at it for, you know, two, three years, that I really finally felt truly comfortable in what I was doing. Yeah, I'm just as as you were talking there, it's interesting. I was just thinking the difference between like a radio call and then like mm-hmm. a uh, like a TV call or a video call. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that's got to be yeah because radio obviously you're describing the situation because you have to mm-hmm. paint the picture verbally. But then if it's a video, um, yeah, I mean it's the you know everybody can see it, right? So yeah, and I think right. and I think sometimes yeah, you're right. You uh, to go back to what you were saying, I think. Uh, you just sort of have to let things, like, just naturally, like, just shut up and let people take in the moment, right? Right. And that's uh, one of the biggest compliments I ever got from one of our uh, home team fans, actually. She said that I can close my eyes and picture exactly what's going on whenever she would listen to my radio call out there. And, yeah, I mean, it's like, if I have just the just the video feed only... I don't have to sit there and describe, you know, and say, oh, Jameson picks it up on the far side and circles back through his own zone. I can just say, you know, and now Jameson with the puck, and, you know, they can see that he's circling it back through his own zone or something. Exactly. So exactly. It's, yeah, it's a different beast entirely that once you get that picture that you don't have to create that picture for them, but they can see the picture on their own. What would you? What do you prefer? I definitely prefer radio because uh, it's just, it's what I've gotten used to for the most part over all that time because, uh, first year and a half i'd say that i was there it was radio only we didn't have any kind of internet tv stuff for it and so uh, by that 0708 season that's when we first had video to work with on there and i was in such a habit of calling it in a radio style and i mean we also had the radio simulcast of it as well so it's like i had to keep going with it by the time we got down to just video alone it's like well i've already gotten so into this habit that i'm just going to keep on going with it yeah well as we as you kind of progress here um like you were saying, the uh, what was your last season? It was uh, twelve thirteen, right? Yeah, that was the final one for me. Yeah, like was it a, a, a mutual? Like did they kind of tell you eh, it's time for you to move on? Don't call us, we'll call you, or was it your decision, or how did that all happen? It ultimately was my decision, but the writing was kind of on the wall at that point. That uh, I was pretty sure that enough had happened that they were going to want to go in a different direction there pretty soon because. Uh, I was already really starting to get frustrated with the direction of the team in uh, the 11-12 season. It was Baxter's first year, and he came in with just such fanfare from our ownership that, you know, this is going to be the guy who's going to turn around the team and this, that, and the other. And Baxter had such success everywhere else, too. I mean, this is a guy who was a head coach in the IHL and the AHL and over in Finland. He was an assistant coach with a whole bunch of teams. I mean, I think he won the Turner Cup his second year as head coach there in Salt Lake. Speaking of some tough teams, he had like Stu Grimson, Martin Samard, and about four other guys that were high in the Pims there that year. But, uh, I mean, he was an assistant coach with Chicago when they were uh, still looking like they could become a powerhouse there. I think it was the uh, year after they lost the Penguins for the Cup. He was an assistant there. Um, he was an assistant with, what, San Jose, Florida. And when he came over to Wenatchee in the North American League, he took them from being an expansion team to playing in the Robertson Cup final his first year, took them back to the Robertson Cup final again his second year. And so, I mean... He came in with our owners like, yeah, this is going to be the guy who's going to turn everything around. And he had such high hopes for him. All of our fan base had such high hopes for him. And the team completely shit the bed that first season. I mean, we uh, 
record-wise, it was, I think, the second worst season we had ever had in team history. And when you come in with that kind of fanfare that, you know, this is going to be the huge guy for you and everything, and it's not, there's only so much you can do to turn chicken shit into chicken salad. I mean, I was just getting so frustrated trying to, you know, spin this season somehow into a positive in some way. And by the time the second season rolled around, the 2012-2013 season, I was, I mean... I was just over it at that point. It was I can look through the roster from those last two seasons, and when I compare it to like my first couple of seasons in the league, I could name something about every single player on every single roster that Wichita Falls ever had, and a lot of the and a lot of the opposing teams too. When I look at that eleven, twelve, and twelve, thirteen roster, there are players on there. I'm going, wait, who was this guy? Wait, when did he play there? I I couldn't tell you anything about them. I was just I was just so tired of it at that point. And so uh, I guess the last straw for me really came about kind of midway through the season. We had this really great goalie playing for us that year. He was actually, an, he actually ended up as a third round uh, draft pick there. Evan Cowley, taken by the uh, Florida Panthers, third round of the uh, 2013 draft, never ended up making with it with them. Last I saw, he was playing, I think, over in Europe. He got into the minors a bit. Uh, played Denver University there for a while, but uh, and he was, you know, came in with with the, uh, such uh, just, I mean, with such high expectations on him that he was already being looked at by NHL scouts and ended up as the NHL draft pick after that, but. So anytime that he would have a bad game, unfortunately, the uh, I think they were it was one of our pairs, uh, one of our sets of billet parents, and they housed one of our defensemen. But they were also really good friends with the backup goalie. So anytime that anything would happen, whether it was Cowley's fault or not, that a goal got given, it's like, oh, put Cooper in, put Cooper in, we want Cooper. And it's like at first it's kind of funny, you know, because like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, you're yeah, of course, you know, but. Looking back at this, you know, being, like I said, a Cleveland sports fan, our favorite player in Cleveland is the backup uh, quarterback. So yeah. kind of the same thing here. Yeah. And so uh, they're, of course, you know, going, oh, put Cooper in, put Cooper in. It's like, at first it's funny. After a while, it gets really old, especially, I mean, if he's facing down like a 2-on-0 break coming his way, makes the save on the first shot and lets the second one, and they're going, put Cooper in. It's like, shut the hell up. What the hell are you talking about? I mean, nobody could have made that save. You could put Patrick Waugh in there, and he might make two saves off, and that's about it. But I just finally got tired of it. And they were, you know, putting up on Twitter where everybody's going to see it, whether it's, you know, our fans, whether it's our own players are probably going to see it when they're tweeting it out there. That shit ruins team morale. And I finally got tired of it and got into this whole huge fight with them at one point in December on our way back from a road trip. I'm, you know, sitting there tweeting about it, going back and forth with them over it. And then it happens again late in, uh, in, uh, late December. And finally I had enough and I blocked them from, uh, from our team Twitter and from my own Twitter. Well, they got all up in arms about it and got all pissed off. And the last tweet that I remember reading from one of them was something like, enjoy your job for now or something like that. I'm just like, all right, that's it. I'm, I'm just tired of this stuff. So I get called into a meeting with, uh, with Baxter because our team owner is like, look, I don't want to deal with this. Paul, you take it. And it felt to me like Baxter completely took the Billet family side on this whole thing. And I just walked out of there just knowing that that's it. I'm done. I'm, I have no interest in continuing with this team. And if I could have walked out of the office that day and left, I probably would have. But it was later that day. I texted my wife and I said, I'm going to start looking for a different job. This is, this is ridiculous. I've had enough of this. And she's, of course, like, oh, okay, yeah, right. Because, I mean, I've been pissed about stuff before with this team and everything, but not quite to this point at all. And so as, you know, a couple weeks later, I was able to find uh, the job that I work at now, applied to that, got in for an interview a month after that, and – with a month left in the season, it was such a relief to be able to actually go into our owners and coaches' office and hand them my resignation letter and say, I'm out of here in April. See ya. So, uh, but yeah, I was able to get out of there. I finished out the season. Um, but yeah, I mean, we missed the playoffs, so I didn't have to, didn't have to drive up any extra at all to cover any games or anything. But 
that was pretty much the end of it. So I, it's like I could kind of see the writing on the wall. They probably were going to try to go in a different direction there, but I just kind of beat them to the punch, essentially. Yeah, they um, like, and I know uh, at that point, had, did they sort of kill your uh, your desire to do the to play by play? Like, was that just sort of like I'm done? Because I know your new job here. I, I don't know if you want to talk about your new job, but oh yeah, it, it's not play by play. We'll put it that way. Right, yeah, I mean, it's still in the sports field and everything. I'm, you know, photo editor for Panini Trading Cards now, and I actually came in originally to do their hockey stuff. When they lost their hockey contract, I got moved mostly on to uh, college sports. And so I'm the lead college photo editor. I'm kind of the number two guy on their soccer products as well, so I've been mostly working here the last couple of weeks. But, um, I mean, at times, I do, I do still enjoy calling games. My biggest thing, I just do not want to have to work for a team ever again. That was what really killed it for me. I still enjoy broadcasting games. I actually talked to the uh, play-by-play guy a couple of years ago for the Lone Star Brahmas here in the NAHL, which are, you know, just over in uh, kind of close to Fort Worth, so it's like a 20-minute drive here from my place in Arlington. But I talked to him about possibly doing some uh, color commentary stuff, but never really, never got into it at all. Um, I started playing floorball, which is kind of this offshoot of street hockey. It's really big over in Europe. Um, I think there's only like six countries that have ever even meddled in it in its entire history of all of its tournaments, but... Uh, it's almost always Finland and Sweden that are the big champs of that and everything. But it's gotten big here in the Dallas area. I played it for a while before uh, getting banned from playing for a few years there. But they actually had a tournament back in March that we did. Uh, we were hoping to do a full broadcast and have it on uh, ESPN's Internet feed on their ESPN3 service. Unfortunately, we weren't able to do that. In this, and the uh, other broadcasting company that we were supposed to work with had to drop their coverage over because of uh, COVID. They couldn't send their... Uh, they couldn't send their camera crews out here to be able to cover it and everything. So we just did kind of this uh, sort of, we just kind of recorded the video on our own as best we could, just kind of did some play-by-play over it. But I really enjoyed being able to do that. I was able to, you know, get on the mic again for a little bit and just, you know, show off the skills, keep the skills, uh, keep it sharp and everything. But, yeah, I still really like broadcasting. I just, I don't want to ever have to do it for a team ever again. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, and if you want to, it's just like anything, right? It's it's so... Uh... It's so tough to get into, though. Like there, like it is, you know, and like the open, like it's not like there's just openings all over the place, right? And you know, right. and, it, and of course, you know, you got to be willing to move, etc. And you know, mm-hmm. and at that point, it, you know, it depends at what point in your life you're just like, yeah, I'm sort of settled here. I really don't want to pick up and, and let everybody move. Right. Yeah, and that's. I mean, that's why you see so many broadcasters that are either single or have no kids or ultimately end up divorced just because, I mean, you have to go to where the jobs are. I mean, just during the time when I was there in the NAHL, I was a member of a, uh, totally blank on the name of the group now, but it was this uh, basically almost not quite an agency for broadcasters, but it, you know, would get a hold of any broadcasting job that's open, throw it out there and say, hey, you know, here's what's available right now. And so even in the years that I was working with that, I mean, you'd see maybe two or three AHL positions come open every year or so, and that's out of, what, 30 teams in there? Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, I mean, if you get to, like, just the highest two levels of hockey, you're dealing with, you know, 60 teams at that point between the NHL and the AHL. Throwing the ECHL, make it 90 spots in that are open total, and every year you're going to see maybe five or ten of those come open total. So it's, once you get in, you have to keep in there to be able to stay in on it, and at that point I just get a point of, like, you know what, if I get, if I'm out of it, so what? I've got other things I can do, and... I've got enough kind of good history, at least, behind me that if I ever want to get back into it someday, I probably could. But right now, I'm totally happy just, you know, staying away from it. Yeah. 
Well, and uh, no, man, that was that was a cool trip. Uh, like I said, it's uh, don't get to talk about the well, never get to talk about the NAHL, and uh, but yeah. uh, no, it was fun hearing the names and the stories, and and definitely, like I would say, with this show, we either talk to fans or we're talking mm-hmm. to ex players. So to get like a broadcaster's point of view of the of the whole deal was uh, has been has been really cool. Um, you briefly touched on it there, and uh, of course, I'm a big. Uh, Growing up as a kid, you know, I was a hockey card collector or a sports card yep. collector, and and hockey, and you're and you're working for Panini now. How did that? Yep. How did you uh, get hooked up into that? Once again, it's just a lot of luck on my side for the most part. Um, so I was, like I said, you know, I was getting really frustrated with everything going on there in Wichita Falls, and decide, all right, I'm just going to look and see what's out there. And I'm thinking to myself, well, God, what can I even really look into? I mean, I can look at other broadcasting jobs somewhat, and hopefully something comes open. And I thought, well. There's nothing that says I really have to continue in the broadcast world. And so uh, I thought, okay, well, what other things do I enjoy doing? And, you know, I've been a card collector since I was six, seven years old. Still am to this day now at 36. It's like, all right, what's out there in the card industry? So I'm thinking, well, okay, Upper Deck and Topps are, of course, the two big companies. Topps, I'd have to move all the way out to, like, Brooklyn to work for them, and that's that's not happening. For, t- for uh, Upper Deck, I'd have to move to San Diego. That's also probably not happening. Those are both kind of expensive places to live, so... I thought, well, wait a second, there's got to be somebody else making cards out there, and that's when I remembered, oh, yeah, Panini, because the uh, score just brought back their hockey set, and that's when I discovered that they were only uh, just down here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It's a two-hour drive or so. It's like, all right, that is actually doable, because, I mean, I don't have to I don't have to drive all the way across country, you know, it would take an entire day just to move everything. I could do it in an afternoon just about. And so um, I looked on their website, and under job stuff, they just said, yeah, check Monster, we post every job opening there, and... The first one that I saw was something about a memorabilia coordinator. It's like, all right, I mean, I know autographs really well. I've been an autograph collector since I was in college. Um, I can, I know at least a little bit about, you know, jerseys and such and game used equipment like that. So I thought about doing that one. It said bilingual preferred, and unfortunately, I don't speak any Spanish aside from counting to 10. And even my French is very, uh, like, sub-conversational level at this point, but, uh, so, yeah, it's like, okay, I'm not going to be able to probably do that one very well if they want to bilingual English-Spanish. So I just kept an eye out, and eventually one came open for a photo editor's position. Like, okay, that's that's more in the area of what I can do, and it said especially one who knows hockey and baseball. And so I read the description off to my wife, and she just listens to me, reads this whole thing off. She says, so basically they are looking to hire you. Then. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what this is. So, uh, yeah, I just put in my application didn't hear anything for a little bit, and finally they contacted me and said, yeah, we'll do, a, we'll do an interview here with you, and uh, this is about late February at this point. So uh, went down, did the interview, and it went so well that that day I started driving around looking for apartments down here in, uh, in just around the uh, Arlington Irving area. And yeah, it was about two weeks after that, they uh, officially sent me the job offer and faxed it over, quit my resignation with a month to spare, and didn't look back. Well, that's cool, man. So, like, you're you're basically picking the so you're picking the pictures that appear on the cards. Yeah, they've got um, one department comes up with kind of the design for what the card is going to look like. Another department comes up with a list of you know twenty five, a hundred, two hundred, five hundred, whatever players that are going to go with in that design. And I'm kind of the one who puts those two together. I have to find a photo that fits that particular design and uh, meets kind of all the other qualifications that we have to have on them as well because it kind of varies from league to league and sport to sport as to what we can show, what we can't show, all those sorts of things. Well, that's interesting. Like, for hockey, what were you kind of told not to show? Biggest thing was, uh, unfortunately, no fighting. Because you may recall that in the entire history of trading cards, at least at the NHL level, I can think of two that ever featured a fight. Even, like, after a fight, they really can't even show that. You have to, you know, 
fully in uniform, gloves on, helmet, chin strap strapped up, um, no blood, no fouls being committed of any kind, no penalties in hockey. Um, God, what else is there? You want to get guys who don't like have a if they're if they have a mouth guard in. You want to get them so it's, their mouth guard isn't like totally hanging out the side of their mouth or something. There's uh, there was J T Brown for Tampa Bay was the worst one for that one. I think he played like two games that first year that I was there. They only had like seven photos of him, and I think in six of them his mouth guard is halfway out of his mouth. It's like, dude, you're killing me here. So it's a lot of stuff like that. Just make them look dignified, make them look heroic. The biggest thing they say is, look at that photo, and if you were that player, would you like how you're represented in that photo? That's the big thing we always like, kind of have to ask ourselves on that. Yeah, it, it was funny, and it, it was as going through the cards over the years and stuff. And I could just remember, um, actually, I believe. I mean, I'm, obviously, I'm asking this question for the sake of our listeners, but I think I had actually already talked to you about this, but about the uh, picking the pitchers and stuff. It always used to bug me, like when I go through my baseball cards, and they would have like, it's a pitcher, and they show him hitting, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Or it was yep. like, oh, here's Mark McGuire's card, and they got him, like, running the bases. It's like, oh, yeah, because yeah. that's what McGuire's known for, all those, uh, you know, stretching those uh, singles to doubles. Like, what are we doing right. here? Like, uh, yep. I, or, oh, here's a, because Kotseko was my favorite player. Yes, I know he's an idiot, but, you know, <laughs> growing up, he was my favorite guy. But it was, um, you know, I mean, you want to see him swinging from his ass, right? No, what do they show? Right. Here he's playing catch. Okay, good. Thanks, yeah. Tops. Good, good work. Mm-hmm. Or, or just the worst, the headshot. It's like, oh, oh, yeah. Like, what is this? A driver's license photo? Come on, <laughs> you know <laughs> yep. who's picking this stuff? You know, right? And I mean, some of that stuff I do enjoy from time to time. Like, you know, showing the pitcher batting every now and then is great. Upper deck, I absolutely love doing that. They would show pitchers batting anytime they could, and it's fun occasionally. But when it's like. I think it was like Fernando Valenzuela like three times, like two, like twice in the span of three years of shown batting. It's like, ease up on it there, guys. Let's, you know, once in a while is fine. Like when they had, uh, I think it was 1996, Roger Clemens, they showed him batting. It's like, that one's kind of interesting because that never happens. He was an American League pitcher, so he never had to bat. Well, that's true. So putting yeah. that one on there, it's like, that's kind of cool to do that. But if it's a National League one, it's like, yeah, it's fun every now and then, but... And that's one of the things that they do with Panini, too, is they tell us, you know, if it is a card of a pitcher, show him pitching. If it's a card of a hitter, hitting, fielding, something like that. And, yeah, if it's, you know, McGuire, Cecil Fielder, definitely show them hitting, not running the bases, not fielding. But, yeah, yeah I mean, there's, like, RKC and Fraco, I think it was, his 96 or 97 upper deck card. It shows him catching. He's a first baseman and third baseman, mostly. But he got pressed into service as a catcher. Something like that's really kind of cool because that never happens at all. But... Yeah, yeah. For the most part, they say keep it to, keep it to uh, whatever position they're shown on there. If it says he plays third base on the card, even if he occasionally plays first base, try not to show him playing first base on there because the different glove and everything. But yeah, it's just uh, keep it simple for the most part. You know, keep it straightforward and don't do anything too crazy unless you're specifically requested to. Yeah. Well, in in terms of like, so you're working in the card industry and stuff. Obviously, you've met players through that. Um, yeah. For the most part, are they pretty, uh, do you find, like, players, like, uh, like, were they collectors growing up, or is this, they're, they're kind of, so they're kind of really into it? I mean, other guys just don't give a shit, this is just, you know, an appearance that I gotta do. What's, what's the feeling overall? It really runs the gamut of all of those. Um, yeah. Occasionally Panini, they did have players, because they do have players come in when they have to do some signings for, uh, getting them to autograph cards that are going to be put into packs, or getting them to autograph the stickers that are put onto the cards that are put into packs. 
so I've met a few players that way, but um, for the most part, we I don't really get to meet a whole lot of them working back in the photo department there. It's mostly like the acquisitions department that does all that. Most of the athletes that I've met have been from just uh, randomly going out to teams' practices or games or uh, outside of hotels or anything like that. I started out as an autograph collector when I was in college because being right there in Boston, you get any of the teams that came in to play against the Bruins or the Red Sox or the Patriots and just wait kind of on the sidewalk outside the hotel as they're getting on the bus to go to the game. A lot of them will come over and stop and sign for you there. And so that's how I've met most of those guys is through that way or just at the ballpark. You know, if I go to a baseball game, they'll come over and sign over by the dugout or something. But, yeah, it's all over the place. I mean, you get a guy, get some guys who are just like, you know, don't ever bother me again and all that. Ty Domi is one of the biggest ones I can think of right there. He, uh, out of my two or three years or so doing autographs up in Boston, I got him once in there. It was because the guy standing next to me literally begged. He said, please, Ty, you've never signed for me before. And Domi stops at the entrance of the bus, turns back and says, never signed for you at all, ever, before. He's like, no, never. He's like, all right, don't ever ask me again. Comes over and signs for all of us. And then as he's getting back in the bus, he says, remember, don't ever ask me again. And I never saw him sign again for me after that, or for anyone in Boston after that. Oh, just, but, uh, yeah, just I mean, a, a man of the people. Thanks, Ty. Yeah, yeah Exactly. And you get some guys who are the complete opposite of that. Um, the late Brad McCrimmon was one of my favorite ones. He was an assistant coach with uh, Atlanta when I met him. But he would stand there and sign all day for you. He'd comment on the pictures, on the cards and everything. He'd say, oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite ones right there. Like his uh, 1991 score, he's laying into a slap shot, and you can see the curve on the stick there. He's, uh, the flex on it, he's leaning into it there. He says, oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite ones right there. And then there was his 91-92 uh, pro set where he was wearing the uh, – original six uh, Red Wings sweater in there. He said, yeah, so my favorite one's right there. I was like, oh, yeah, I got the old jersey on there. He looks at me and goes, sweaters, dude, sweaters. I'm like, oh, right, right, sweaters. Apologies, but he was so great about it there. And, uh, I mean, he he probably signed about 10 cards for me there that day. But, yeah, it's all over the map. You get some guys who are collectors, some guys who are just like, okay, yeah, those exist. That's cool. So, yeah, I know uh, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Dome. Because that was my question. My next question was going to be, like, I know with all your autograph, uh, you know, best and worst guys and experiences and stuff. I was going to say, before I ask you that, though, uh, yeah, with Domi, a friend of mine had the, the famous Probert Domi fight picture, right? Oh, yeah. And, and, of course, he had it. Probert had already signed it. So, mm-hmm. oh, and uh, it was in, it was after he had finished playing. Um, I can't mm-hmm. remember what he was in town to do. Anyway, my buddy, run, my, my buddy, <laughs> pardon me, gets the heads up that Domi's in town and blah, blah, blah. And Ty Domi and my buddy are the only ones in this hallway. That's it. And my buddy's got this picture, and he's got the chart, the whole thing, and he goes, hey, Ty, you know, big... And he was a big Domi fan. He's a huge Domi fan. And he's like, yeah, could you sign this? I had Bob sign it. This would be really cool. And it's in my office, blah, 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 because he lived... Or he worked, like, two blocks from there. So he came... He took the picture from his... It's in his office. It was hanging there. Ran down to downtown Calgary to get Domi to sign this. And, uh... Or, and uh, Domi's like, yeah, no, I don't sign fight pictures. Oh, geez. And started walking away. And my buddy's just looking at him like, fuck, are you serious? Like, what? And he's just like, and he goes, well, yeah, I couldn't come up with any pictures of you on the power play, though. You know? <laughs> and Domi just gave him the death glare, right? And just stood there and stared at it and then just walked. It just kept going. He never did sign it. It was just like, oh, are you yeah. serious, man? And it's so funny because I listened... And Domi, you got a little heat with me anyway because you unfollowed me on Twitter. I was I'm mad at him for that, but but uh, you just see him. But I, you know, you read. And I'm a I was always a Domi fan. I'm still a Domi fan. But it was just like, yeah. oh yeah, you hear all this stuff, and he tries to 
play it up like he's just a man of the people in his book and everything else. And I don't know. I've heard so many stories. I've heard a bunch of stories about him just being an asshole to people. And it's just like, I don't know. Funny. I've heard early on that he used to be a good signer, like up until kind of the middle of his time in Toronto. Yeah. After after, he, after he'd been there a couple of years, though, that's when he kind of started to turn a little bit. And I've heard he's actually loosened up a bit here lately because uh, I've got a couple of uh, autograph card sets I'm working on uh, trying to complete. And Domi's in uh, two out of these, you know, I think I've got like, what, four or five, six, I'm up to like seven or eight hockey sets I'm working on now. He's in two of them. And one of them I was able to get there outside the hotel in Boston. The other one I had to have a guy up in... Somewhere in Ontario, I forget exactly where uh, Mark is at up there, but uh, he was able to get him for me for the other set, fortunately, because uh, he used to see him around up there for whatever reason there. But it seems like, yeah, he's softened up a bit here once again, but nowhere near what he used to be or nowhere near what, what we call a good signer, that's for sure. Well, now, speaking of that, uh, before I know we're, I've kept you here a while here, I won't keep you too much longer, but uh, in terms good. of in, in hockey, uh, who, who was the, you, you mentioned McCrimmon. Um, Who's another like uh, good signer, like kind of uh, some name guys or some tough guy? Well, I think the tough guys are probably mo- the majority of them are probably good anyway. But who are uh, who are some good signers and who are some shitty ones? A lot of the tough guys have been really good signers. Like one of the ones I always will mention here is PJ Stock. Yeah, when he was in Boston, I mean the fans absolutely loved him in Boston, and so he everybody seemed to love him there. And yeah, he signed a whole bunch for me while I was up uh, living up there. Um, geez, in terms of like some of the bigger names, I'm trying to think. There's the great thing with hockey is that there are there are far more good signers in hockey than there are tough and bad ones. It's like uh, trying to just like around the Dallas area here. Jamie Ben used to be one of the best signers you could ever find, and then he started hanging out with Tyler Sagan, and he's turned almost impossible. Sagan hates signing and has tried to convince everybody on the team pretty much that. If you're getting your items signed in blue Sharpie, that, that just means that you're going to turn around and sell them. And so because that Ben will no longer sign anything in blue Sharpie, he will only sign in black on cards and photos or any kind of metallic pen. Um, on pucks, he won't sign pucks in silver for some reason. Somebody told him they're going to sell them with, if you do that. So he'll only sign pucks in like gold or something like that or any other paint pen, really. And, uh, yeah, just, uh, what? That is like, that, that's weird. the most ridiculous logic I've ever heard. What? Like, yeah. Which, right. I mean, yeah, most, oh, the thing is that most serious collectors will get their stuff signed in blue, and they'll get the product signed in silver. And But that doesn't mean we're necessarily all selling them either. I mean, put it this way, every dealer gets their stuff signed in blue, but not everybody who gets their stuff signed in blue is a dealer, is the best way that I can put it. And so just because of that, he's like, well, better to be on safe than sorry, and just insist on signing in black all the time. So, I mean, at least uh, I got him when he was still a good signer plenty of times. So it's like, all right, good, whatever, I'm set on him, but... Yeah, I'm trying to think like who like some of the bigger names and everything out there. Um, Do you ever get guys that like, they'll, they'll sign, but they always sign on like the darkest part on purpose? It's just like Sergey Samsonov. Yes, <laughs> I, I was always mad. I, I don't think he. I don't think he did this on purpose. Well, I know he didn't do it on purpose. He was probably just signing and whatever. But uh, and I'm not a real huge autograph guy. But I had to help some guys out with some pictures, and he was like, "Hey, you no, know, we're down here." He goes. I you know I can get J- Cam Jansen's to sign, and I was a big Jansen's fan, right? So I was like, oh yeah, and you got, so I sent him this really cool after fight Devils picture, and uh, and so he gets Jansen's to sign it and stuff, and he did, and he said, oh Cam was really cool, and blah blah blah. Well, it's a black sharpie, and he signs it right on his black pants. 
Oh, jeez. And yep. I'm like, oh, and meanwhile, like, and I, I picked the picture on purpose because there's a, kind of a, in that bottom right, there was like a clear area where you could sign, you know, which is yep. the reason I picked the picture. And it was just like, or above his head, sort of. Like, I, I gave room on the clear part because I was thinking, okay, let's give him room. And he signs right on the pants. I'm like, oh, come on, man. Yep. Like, yeah. I was just wondering if anybody, if you ever kind of thought about, like, if guys just do that on purpose sometimes. Sergey Samsonov was the biggest one that I could think of. He would sign. He was kind of interesting. He would he would stop every day after morning skates. I used to go out to uh, Bruins Arena there after their morning skate almost every day that I was up there in college, and he would roll out, roll his window down, and sign one item for everybody that was there. So you know he's reliable at least, and I mean I'll take that any day, no problem. But uh, one of the things I discovered was that if you hand him like your cards on like a notebook or something like that, he'll only sign one of them. But if you hand him two cards individually, he'll sign them both. So I started doing that after a while. But, uh, yeah, he would start signing all the time on, like, the darkest spot of the card. Which, I mean, that can be kind of tough, too, because, I mean, the Bruins, of course, had, you know, black sweaters, black pants, all that. So sometimes you'd have one that has a lot of black on it there. So uh, even if it had, you know, a little bit of space there, he usually would sign it right over kind of a darker area. So I started counteracting that one by breaking out a silver Sharpie, and I would hand that to him, and he'd sign it right in over the dark spot of the card there. Shows up real nice there in that uh, silver on it instead. Well, you, I, I cut you off. You said Joe Thornton. Joe Thornton was another one's a pretty decent signer. He was uh, he wouldn't sign after morning skates typically uh, up with the Bruins, but after games, he went down to the arena after a game. He'd be driving out and he would sign for everybody it's kind of along the front row of the uh, crowd waiting there. And I've heard that yeah, if you get him on the road or something like that, that he would be a great signer there too. He's been pretty decent by mail for being a big name player and everything. So I have to put him up there as being one of the one of the better ones as well. Well, i got to ask about two guys, of course, the two big ones, Crosby and Ovechkin. Out of those two, I've never, I've only had the chance to go for each of them about maybe once or twice. And I had the worst luck with Crosby for the longest time because uh, they played against, uh, when the Penguins, when he was first drafted by the Penguins, they played against the Bruins twice early on in the year. And fortunately, it was right before I was finishing it at uh, Emerson, so I was able to get them for both those games up there. And... The first series, the first game they played up there, he did not touch a pen at all. And the biggest reason I'd heard for it was that he still had not gotten a point yet in a game, much less even a goal. And so it was like he just wanted to concentrate and be able to, you know, do that first and then be like, all right, I can finally settle down and engage with the fans a bit now. And so I didn't see, I think I saw him sign for like a kid one time up there that first game, and that was it. And that was over, you know, two full days of a trip in there. The next time in, I just had the worst luck in this case where uh like he would get you know close to being able to being ready to being there to sign my photo or something and be like oh hey guys gotta go and end up you know getting in a cab or on the bus or whatever and that actually turned into a decent trip because uh, i was able to get mario lemieux's autograph at least on that one and uh, ryan vandenbush signed my jersey and gave me one of his sticks so it's like given those options i will take those uh when it comes to and uh, miss out on crosby i can i can accept that no problem but i did eventually get crosby by mail so i got a photo signed by him that i'm at least hoping it's real if not okay whatever it, it's it looks good to me at least from what i know but uh ovechkin's a totally different story ovechkin has hated signing from the very moment he walked into the league he signed a little bit early on when he was uh, in his first season there unfortunately with him the capitals came in after i had left boston so i wasn't able to go after him then but I tried to get them once down here in Dallas. Um, the hotels here in Dallas usually are tough. They don't really allow a whole lot of access to uh, fans and collectors. There's 
one that most of the NHL teams and NBA teams stay out, that if they see you with a Sharpie, they're kicking you off the property right then and there. But in 2013, the Capitals came in for uh, early on in the season here, and so I figured, you know what? They're saying an easy hotel. I'm going to go try it out. And I did all right. I mean, I got, um, like, Nicholas Backstrom signed, um, what's his name, the goalie, uh, Holtby. He signed a couple other guys, too, so I did all right there. But uh, Ovechkin, on the way to and from morning skate, said, I'll sign at game time, I'll sign at game time, I'll sign at game time the whole time there. But uh, we come out there again at game time, and we're waiting out by the bus, and a security guy comes down and says, "Uh, yeah, you're all going to have to leave the property. Ovechkin went to security and had them them kick us off. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you read the message boards and everything for years, and it's always just been Ovechkin's just a douchebag and everything. And mm-hmm. and I've talked to a few people. I, yeah, I've talked to other players. I'm you know I won't throw names out, but they're like, yeah, he's a fucking clown, you know. And it was just yeah. like he's not popular to tell you that. But uh, maybe with teammates he might be or whatever. But this is just opposition guys. They never really liked him personally. And uh, and it was funny because of course after he wins the cup and it's drunk fun Ovi. He loves everybody, yeah. and it's like, no, he doesn't. You know, like, yeah. uh, you yeah. know. But, yeah, I was always sort of, uh, that was always the uh, the, report, the reports I got. But, uh, oh, i got to ask you one more thing. Did you ever get Probert? I never did. My uh, I started doing all the in-person graphing in uh, January of 2003. Yeah. And at that point, I think that was, was that his last season as a player, or was it just before that? Yeah, I, no, either way, I, it was either it was either his last season, or he yeah. may have been doing some broadcast work with them, or something like that. But the Blackhawks came into Boston, and it was, like I said, it was right when I was first starting out as a collector, I didn't know about how to go about finding what hotels teams were at, and so never got the chance to get Probert at all. Um, he's one that I still need for one of those sets I'm doing. It's that uh, 2002-2003 Fleer throwback set that has all the old tough guys in it from. Yeah. And guys from like back in the 60s all the way up to the 2000s in there, but yep. Prober is one of about, I think, 12 players that I have left that I need out of that set. And that's, I mean, the 90-card set, I think 92 cards, something like that, and I think at least 88 or 90 of those guys were alive when their card was printed, so I should be able to hopefully get some of those ones uh, signed out of the guys that, you know, died not long after or something. There's at least, it's conceivable that there might be signed copies of those cards out there. Isn't Link Gates in that site, or in that set? Yes, he is. That's going to be one of the uh, that's one of the great white whales of that set there for me. He's uh, he's going to be a tough one to come across. I uh, I yeah, Link is uh, that, well. He's the well. They always say here in the enforcer podcasting business, he's the great white fucking interview, right? Great white whale interview yeah. with Link Gates. But uh, yep, yeah, I, I've gotten some leads. I kind of know where he is, so I'm I'm working <laughs> on it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, anything autographed link would be a friend of mine. I've 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 already given him a bunch of pictures and stuff, and uh, some some fight DVDs to to bribe Link with. Here here, give yeah. Link his fights, so he signs these three things. But uh, yeah, working on it. I'll keep you posted. But uh, that would be great. I mean, that'd be huge if there's any way to come across that one. Because I mean, yeah, out of the like I said, out of those twelve remaining ones, he is one of maybe two or three that I know nothing about their current whereabouts. Yeah, the uh, Joe Lazito, friend of the show, and of course he does the yeah. Islanders Coliseum Chronicles podcast. Um, he was actually worked for Fleer at that time, and that's the set he put together for him. He picked all. No of kidding! Them. I didn't know he was involved in that. Wow. Yeah, that, he, that's his proud one. He because uh, he he really wanted to do. Of course, that's right up Joe's alley, right? The tough guys. So, oh yeah, big time. You know, with Cocker and, he, and all yeah, I'll have to talk to him about that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'll talk to him about that because I mean, there's like I know because uh, I know he was a huge uh, Mick Fukoda fan. Oh, and yeah. Fukoda is one of the guys that I have not been able to track down either. I, I've got an address on him. I mailed it off to him. 
never heard anything back. I actually went to high school with like Mick Fukuda's godson there in Cleveland, and even through him, I wasn't able to get any uh, any kind of info or anything. So, yeah, he's one that I would love to be able to try to get. Ooh, Fukuda? And just, oh, I mean, yeah, any yeah. of those guys that are left. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Joe's on. Yeah. Joe's on Twitter. Hook up. He had Fakoda. Yeah, I'll have to message him on there. Yeah, he had Fakoda on his podcast. They did like a four part. It's like it's like one of the ultimate. Like if you're a fight fan, it's like the most in depth interview ever. Fakoda was his first guest he ever had because Joe's doing like an Islander specific tough guy. Uh, so of course Mick, being the legendary Islanders, you know, enforcer, pretty much was uh, yep. you know his one of his big guests and. Uh, yeah, no, and Mick follows me on Twitter as well. I should, uh, yeah, yeah, get a hold of Joe. He'll, uh, we, we'll be able to help. We should be able to hook you up with that one without a problem. But uh, that would be great. But I know with Joe with the throwback thing, he was really pumped with that to get uh, to get cards of guys. There was like dudes that like Serge Roberge and stuff, right? Yeah, both Serge and Mario were in that set. Yeah, Those are yeah. another two guys that I haven't been able to track down at all. Um, I was actually able to get, um, going back to talking about Paul Baxter, because Baxter's in that set, too. Yeah. And so I was able to get him. But uh, Kurt Brackenberry is one of the guys that's in that set. And he's another one where just a stroke of luck brought Brackenberry to Wichita Falls to work with the Wildcats during their uh, training camp in 2012. And I just happened to hear uh, Paul talking to him there as he's you know walking in one day and says something about I think he introduced him to me. And he's like, yeah, this is my friend uh, Kurt Brackenberry. I'm like, I know who you are. Holy shit. Hang on a second. And so uh, the next day I brought my card up there with me. He signed it for me. So that's the only way that I'm able to get him at all either. But yeah, there's, I mean, and who else was it? Gary Rissling is another one that I have not been able to find any info on where he's at now. I think he's, he's, he's from, in that set. I think he's from Saskatoon. Uh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. Isn't there, isn't there, I didn't, I hear that there are guys like that won't sign that, sign that card for some reason. Is it Tim there Hunter? Are, is it Tim Hunter that won't there sign are, yeah, fun story on those. There's three guys in that set that will not sign that card. Uh, of them, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bugsy Watson. Brian Watson's another one who won't. And uh, Dave Maley from the New Jersey Devils there. Those three guys will, well, for the longest time, it has said that those three would not sign those cards. And I don't know why Maley's reason is. I don't know what Watson's reason is. And for Hunter, it was because he didn't get paid the royalties for appearing on the card because at the time... He was an assistant coach with uh, Toronto, I think it was, or Washington, one of those. And so because of that, I think that uh, he should have gotten paid from the Players Association for his appearance on that card. Well, he ended up getting fired by them in between when the card was printed and when the card came out. And so because because the card was released after he had been fired, they said, oh, no, we don't owe you any royalties for it. And so he didn't didn't have a contract signed with, you know, Fleer or whoever uh, to uh, get paid for it either. So he basically appeared on this card totally for free, got absolutely nothing out of it. And so for the longest time, he absolutely refused to sign that card. Well, fast forward now up to the 2018, I think it was, NHL draft was here in Dallas. And, of course, you know, Hunter is working with uh, one of the junior teams. I forget exactly which one there. Moose Jaw. Moose Jaw. There you go. All right. So um, I started, you know, pulling cards of anybody who is associated with any NHL, AHL, junior team, college team, any coaching staff, scouting staff, front office people, everybody. I mean, I had three huge-ass binders I was carrying around with me, all filled with cards. I got about 200 signed over the weekend, so it went pretty well there. But uh, So for Timmy, I ended up pulling that uh, Fleur Throwbacks one off, and along with two others. So I figured, all right, at the very least, you know, I'll get two cards signed by him, and he can actually say to me then, nope, I don't sign that one. I'll be damned. He takes my pen and signs all three cards, including that clear throwbacks one. So apparently he's over it now because I've heard of him signing it for a couple other people in the meantime too. So 
Apparently he's over at I will find uh, the Brian Watson one on eBay. Matches other signatures pretty well, so it's like, all right, you know, I'll take a chance on the five bucks there. But, yeah, David Maley has absolutely refused to sign that card. I tried mailing it to him twice. I've heard him actually write back to people and say, yeah, sorry, I don't sign that card for personal reasons. Doesn't expound on any further than that. But even, like, in my letter to him asking him to sign, I said, yeah, I've heard you won't sign this one. Is there any reason why could I make a donation to a charity in your name in exchange for you signing it? Something like that. Anything. I'd just like to know the reasoning behind it. And, yeah, nothing. He signed my other card, sent that one back unsigned. No reason given. So that's going to be the one living one that I'll probably never be able to get on there unless, you know, somehow hell freezes over and lightning strikes in 15 15 places. Lightning strikes the same place 15 times over. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. that's too bad. Yeah, but I mean, I guess they dudes got their reasons, they got their reasons, but I don't mm-hmm. know. But, well, there we go, man. Uh, yeah, well, we covered it all. We covered the uh, the broadcasting history and some uh, some autograph talk, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it was it, it was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I know we had uh, talked about this for a while, and uh, I, yeah. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on, man. Hey, well, thanks for having me, and, you know, like I said, I'll definitely make mention of it here on my uh, YouTube channel here uh, pretty soon. I do one related to autograph collecting and everything, and uh, so I actually might go ahead and show off that uh, Flair throwback set for my uh, Show Off Sunday video tomorrow, so there you if go. I do that, I'll definitely make sure to give you a mention in there and put a link to uh, to your podcast site as well. Well, where where can the, uh, yeah, speaking of uh, social media and all the things you're doing, where can the, yep. where can the listeners find Drew? Yeah. Um, easy spots are, um, I'm not super active on Twitter, but you can find me on Twitter at Drew Pelto. A lot more active on Instagram. I post a lot of my autographs on there, and that's uh, DFW Grapher is my uh, Instagram handle. And you can find me on YouTube. My uh, channel name is just Drew's Autographs. You just go to youtube.com slash Drew Pelto. You'll be able to find it all on there. And usually with those, I try to update it every day whenever I get any kind of an autograph success in the mail or, uh, Anytime that I go out and actually am able to do some in-person graphing, which obviously has been quite a while since I've been able to do that, and I don't have any videos on it yet, so I just started it in May or so. But, um, yeah, I'll try to show off items from my collection there as well. I've done a few with uh, showing off like some of the signed photos and my signed set project stuff. haven't really gotten much into the hockey end of stuff yet, so uh, stay tuned for that. I'll definitely do that Fleer throwback set. I'll probably show off that uh, Topps Total set that's my huge project I've been working on almost 20 years now, and I'm nine away from having done, but... Yeah, got a lot of uh, try to represent every sport on there that I possibly can. Oh, that's cool, though. And I've been, uh, yeah, I've been watching a few of those. And uh, yeah, man, no, that's cool. And like I said, to finally, uh, you know, we get to we get to do this. And uh, you know, from the from talking to you on the message boards in like 1999 to to here, we're doing a podcast in 2020. It's kind of uh, kind of crazy. It is, yeah. I mean, I never thought I'd be uh, involved in stuff related to the hockey fight uh, hobby as long as I have been and yet yeah like you said 20 years later here I am <laughs> yeah no exactly and uh no it's uh and you know of course with uh technology now and everything and uh to you know to be able to talk to you and uh like I said I always say it's crazy on here uh when you when you podcast and you kind of get you, you communicate with people and like there's people in like Russia listening it's like totally yeah. it's like what it's like this is totally bizarre it uh that uh, the world's so small now Right, you, the social media has made it so small. Technology, mm-hmm. crazy. Yep. So yeah, I mean, you go back twenty years to when this stuff was uh, when we were first starting all this stuff. I mean, this phone call has been what you know two hours now, ten cents a minute. That would be about uh, twelve bucks that we were just thrown down on that. And now it's like with all the cell phones, with internet stuff, absolutely almost no cost to it whatsoever. It's just yeah, such a such a huge change to it. 
Yeah, no, exactly. And like, yeah, exactly. Like we were saying to, to, <coughs> to first show up on the message board and find out you're the, you're not the only lunatic that likes hockey fights. And, uh, exactly. it's all of a sudden now we're doing podcasts dedicated to it. It's uh, yeah, we come to yep. a circle, but, uh, yep. all right, Drew, I won't keep you any longer, but, uh, Again, thank you very much for taking um, the two hours to talk to me, and uh, hopefully, uh, we I could I could talk you into doing this again sometime. Definitely, I I would definitely be down for that. All right, well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Have a good day. All right, you too. Thanks, Drew. And you people that don't like fighting, how many of you did you walk out and get a coffee while that was 